Motopod 700. Wow. Greg Haynes here from Eurosport. All the best to everybody involved in every single one of those 700 episodes and enjoy it. Here's to the next 700. Hi, it's Steve Day, British Superbike commentator for Eurosport. Just want to say a huge congratulations to Motopod on reaching podcast number 700. It's been a pleasure to join in from time to time and to all the hosts of Motopod, past and present, You've been so supportive of my journey as a commentator since I first started. So a massive thank you to all of you. And here's to you reaching 1,000 podcasts in the next couple of years. Welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 700. Yes, 700. A little applause for yourself and myself. 700 episodes of Motopod, kind of an amazing number to be at, guys. It's been a great ride. Love it. Still love it. And it couldn't be possible without everyone's support who's helped us along the way. And, you know, what we've got for this month is Keith Kobach, Nick Saban, Alan Fleming, and Dennis Kindlig, who have all kindly donated to the show and have kept things going. We appreciate you all so much. We can't thank you enough. We couldn't do it without you guys and everyone else at in Patreon who's actually helping us as well. It's uh, amazing to get to 700. And uh, hopefully this show uh, has a very very special interview at the end i won't spoil it because it's rich's thing (laughs) and uh you want to be sure you stay around for it because i know it's going to be amazing with that rich i guess we'll take care of a little housekeeping yeah don't you think for 700 so first of all guys i want to let you know there is a new look motopodcast.com website it's really cool really sleek definitely different now Many thanks to Lynn Padilla. He is the man behind the scenes who has built the website and has kept it and maintained it. And it looks amazing. So thank you so much, Lynn, for the update and the refresh. Uh, we like it. You, we want to know what you guys think of it too. So write us at motopod at motopodcast.com if you like the website or not. And along with you know a 700 episode and a new website, we're also pleased to tell you all that now Motopod can be found on Amazon Music in the podcast section. So if you have that, you can find us there. Or if you have friends, you you can tell them that we're available there. And we are also available on the Google Play Store in their podcast app as well. So if you have some friends that got some Android and they're not really in tune to iTunes, it'd be great that you could tell them about that. You can they can go there. So hopefully, if you guys bring some new people into listen on different devices, maybe you can give us some reviews on Amazon, on iTunes, and on Google Play. We'd be greatly appreciated for all of that. That'd be good. It'd be really good. And if you can. If you could help us keep going and go to maybe 800 episodes, see how far this day goes. <laughs> and by donating, that'd be great. Go to the website, www.motopodcast.com. And look on the right-hand side as the links are now on the right-hand side of the page, not on the left-hand side of the page. And you can donate for a little as $2 a month. Well, with that, Rich, I think we're on to actual motorcycling news. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's news, not racing. Well, there is a little bit of racing to talk about, but obviously we're in a bit of a barren patch with MotoGP at the moment, although thankfully that's coming to an end fairly shortly but there are a few bits of notable news to talk about so off we go right so in the category of worst kept secrets inside <laughs> of the paddock Rins is now officially an lcr rider there was still no word regarding mir and hrc 
I got to believe that's a done deal and they're just waiting for the appropriate time to actually announce it. Yeah. So we shall see what's going on there. Uh, so that's one bit of news. Second bit of news is a Mark Marquez update. Mark has now taken the arm out of the sling and he started mobility movements and stuff. So he doesn't have to have it in the sling the whole time. Apparently he says that the pain is gone. That's a great thing. If he can ride without pain or has no pain, we're making progress. So again, slow, hopefully slow, but steady progress will get us there. I think probably lessons have been learned from the last time he rushed back so I don't know about you Jim I don't expect to see him in a race this year maybe at the because they've only got one test I think haven't they uh, or one day of testing at the end of the season to so whether he might show up to Valencia just to do that one day just who knows but clearly they're going to take their time and quite rightly so I do not see Marquez getting on a bike to do testing at the end of the year I would think he would maybe do some testing at the beginning of next year but I would want him to be sure that he is 100% and be sure that the doctors agree that he is 100% so that he can ride to his capability. Yeah. Uh, here's a no surprise, no brainer. Davicioso has announced that he will retire at the season's end. I've been waiting for this personally. Dovi is not a guy to twiddle around at the back of the pack. He has experienced, you know, being at the front, um, you know, with Ducati all those years. And he made Ducati look good as he won several races. Yeah. Uh, he's a talent, but I think father time is creeping up with him. I think he's 36 or will be 36 years old, something close to that. 34. Something of that 30, order, yeah. I know Dovi was fairly old. I think he might have been 32 when he sat out that year. So maybe 33 going on 34. Mm. Father time catches up with everyone. But, you know, he says he still wants to race, but he wants to race at the front. Well, should have been riding the Aprilia this year in my opinion and he must be kicking uh, himself yeah. in retrospect but anyway I mean that's the benefit of hindsight isn't it so but I think he's doing the right thing if he's not really enjoying it he can't he's looking at the data from Quattararo and he just can't replicate that style of riding the bike by the sounds of it and nor can most of the other riders quite frankly so um, it's a shame to see him go but there's plenty of young talent waiting in the wings to come up and, and take one of those seats so at least it gives somebody else a chance yeah that's true you know, talk about tantalizing people who should be retired and aren't retired or whatnot. Remember we had uh, on 699, we talked about Casey Stoner and his tweet about getting a yep. uh, new suit as it were. I thought about that and I sort of kind of speculated in my own mind that maybe his suit he was talking about was like a Nomex suit, right? Perhaps maybe for racing a car. Mm -hmm. I know he spent some time in an Aussie V8, but I did get this thing from Germois, I believe, G-E-R-M-O-I, who is on Twitter. And he sent me a link to what's called the Gypsy Tales podcast. And episode number 271 of this is a Casey Stoner interview. I'm not sure how I can explain it's just a guy uh, from Weatherstu who has entertaining guests that he talks to about general random everyday kind of stuff mm -hmm. and Casey was on there and it sounds like he's just getting a suit get together to go ride with his buddies on some track days is kind of how it sounds in there check that podcast out it's uh, Gypsy Tales G-Y-P-S-Y Tales as you would expect T-A-L-E-S and it was number 271 mm, so. okay a little shout out there the plot thickens <laughs> plot thickens uh, let's see where did you do, 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 do ah you want the next one rich i'm trying to rack my brain where i actually read this I, whether it was a motorsport magazine thing but anyway there was a very interesting article by matt oxley uh, just within the last week or so that i picked up and had a quick read of and he was pointing out that next year we're going to have 22 motorcycles on the motor gp grid i think jim assuming that we don't get the two suzuki places refilled by somebody else Correct. And in this article, he pointed out that of those 22 bikes, six and six only will be from Japanese manufacturers. Now, there's a shocking statistic. Mm. 
four that Hondas is. and two Yamahas, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you yeah. consider, you know, how dominant since what the seventies onwards the Japanese factories have been in Premier yeah. Grand Prix racing. I mean, we really are looking at somewhat of a European factory takeover, I would say at the moment. And although we'll mention him a bit later on, we've got a very interesting interview later on. And it happens to be that I put that very question to the gentleman in question. So we had a bit of a discussion about that whole what's happened, what's going wrong for the Japanese. And then I read subsequently this article on uh, Motors- um, yeah, I think it was motorsportmagazine.com. So I recommend people to go and have a little read of that because as ever, Matt's very good at explaining the history what happened when why you know you know history sort of has a habit of coming full circle eventually doesn't it and what goes around comes around and you know the europeans are starting to re-establish themselves in certain key areas of the sport like aero for example which love it or hate it that's another discussion but it would appear that the japanese as well as economic hardships and so certain aspects of geography uh, which have been brought up as well which hindered them a little bit yeah yeah the tide is turning yeah, I think it's swinging around to European. And I, I'm wondering if it isn't more the arrow is obviously where they're sort of more advanced if I, my small-minded brain thinks about it. There's also a lot more technical innovation from TG Delenia that's going on. Well, let's just kind of narrow this to the aerodynamics. And my thought about it is is that it's Formula One based, right? You have all these great people who are aerodynamicists or are associated in some way to that aerodynamics part of it. What is, I'm trying to think of the, it's not London University, but it's a university near London that has four or five of the major players like Adrian Newey, Ross Braun, Rory Byrne. Uh, they all graduated from the same college. I can't think of the name of it, but they yeah. all graduate with a degree in engineering or aerodynamics. And, you know, so you got to think that there's this sort of overflowing of generous aerodynamic talent that can't break into, say, car racing in some place or form for whatever reason that are been now sort of catered to or recruited by these European bike manufacturers to help them make their bikes go faster. Mm. Just a, just a theory. Who knows? I mean, it's the multi varied. I'm sure exactly what's going on. I won't talk about it too much now, because as I say, we get into an interesting discussion about it in this interview later on, which uh, hopefully people will hang on and listen to. Oh, and finally in MotoGP news, how about this last one? Silverstone is up and coming this weekend or up and upcoming this weekend. I think it's up and coming. Like that makes no sense, guys. (laughs) Well, Uh, 700 and I'm still goofing it up all the time you know that's what you expect from me the drought is nearly over because what we've been five weeks isn't it i think since the last five race so long the weeks enforced yeah. uh longer break because of the absence of the kimmy ring mm-hmm. from the calendar so yeah looking forward to silverstone coming in next weekend so we're recording this on the 28th of july aren't we jim so yeah it's the first weekend in august so yeah looking forward to that so are you going to partake and be at Silverstone Rich? I can't be there on the Saturday, so I'm ah. currently thinking I will try to get there for the Friday and for the Sunday. That's my How current... far of a drive is it for you to Silverstone? It's about 70 miles from where I am, so it's not... Depends whether you ride or drive, of course, as to how long that takes you. There's a little bit of a difference between the two. <laughs> Sorry, Jim, I'm talking in miles. Yes, it's okay. Call, call it no. 100, <laughs> 100 my, kilometers. My, I'll be with miles. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just making the face that I made because you're only 70 miles from Silverstone. Yeah, I know. It's like going around the corner to the shop for you, isn't it? So... (laughs) 
Yeah, 70 miles, well, that's nothing. That's like, you know, I, yeah. I mean, like I said, the nearest track that I that MotoGP was at was Indianapolis. And that was a 90 minute drive, which was, which wound up being like about 110 or 115 miles from, yeah. from my house. So anyway, yeah. Oh, so uh, World Superbike, why don't you tell us what's going on there, Rich? Yeah, a couple of bits of news in World Supers. So Johnny Ray has re-signed with Kawasaki. I don't think that would come as a shock to anybody particularly, although there was a little bit of shenanigans going on, I think, with the management where he was suggesting, well, there were some hints that he was talking to Ducati. That's been a recurring theme, no doubt, aimed at pushing another naught onto the end of the uh, the contract. But So he's official. Uh, Michael Vandermark, he's out injured at the moment, uh, but he has re-signed with the BMW squad as well. And I'm sure people will have uh, watched, what was it, two weekends ago, the World Superbike round at Donington Park scorching hot conditions we had we were in the grip of a major heat wave in the uk that particular weekend so we had temperatures nudging up towards 40 degrees centigrade uh jim Ooh. i'm not going to be able to convert that to fahrenheit it's like 96 97 degrees yes, fahrenheit. it's way it's, out there. I mean, that's it's hot super hot for here and you know obviously black tarmac that temperature must have been absolutely rocketing uh, so how the tires held on i don't know but anyway it was a top rack rasgatioglu masterclass in the heat i mean donington is his favorite track interestingly tends to go well there anyway and he's had a bit of a I wouldn't say a struggle this year but he hasn't been you know for the reigning champion he hasn't been winning at will let's put it that way um, more often than not he's been finishing third because Johnny Ray and uh, Alvaro Bautista on the Ducati have been running riot really but anyway Top Rack showed them the way so he won all three races a little bit of a mini disaster for Bautista he crashed out of one of the races just was a little bit offline into I think it was Goddard's the sort of downhill off camber Nadri last corner at Donington Park so he tucked the front so he lost a bag of points and there was also a podium appearance uh, I'm very happy to report for Scott Redding on the BMW now interestingly BMW who are famously what should we say corporate in the way that they like to present themselves as a brand don't like to suggest that outside companies are part of what they do because it must all be part of you know the mothership but even they at this point are, are listening to their riders and they launched a new swinging arm I've got a feeling it was produced by Calex see the Calex or Suter which are names that will be very familiar to those of us who love the MotoGP and all of a sudden they were getting grip and making tyres last which I think has been their major Achilles heel so far this season Redding was running out of grip still towards the end but of course we had these uh, sensationally hot conditions so it was perhaps a bit abnormal but anyway Scott got a podium which compared to where BMW have been is a, almost as good as a race win for them so that's a glimmer of hope for him and a glimmer of hope for us who like to see you know BMW at the front because as I was talking to Greg on the last show the interview we put into 699 BMW have a nasty habit of dipping their toes in and out of various race series we've seen it often including World Superbike for that matter so they need to have some decent results and and it's good to see that they've had one. And we are heading to the Czech Republic this weekend to the track which is called, or the place which is called Most. We'll hope to see some continued positive development and positive results for BMW amongst other people. Uh, just a couple of other things on. So hold on, I have a. Yeah, I sorry. have one thing. So has BMW changed the clutch out? Yeah, yes, I believe there was a change they have in the clutch as well. The clutch. Yes, okay, I remember that from this interview with Gregory Haynes and talking about how Redding didn't like the clutch that was in there, and apparently mm. that was all done by Bosch. I think he said. So I was like, hmm. If they wondered since they, you know, he did have that podium, I wondered, oh, maybe they had changed the clutch too. I'm not sure that BMW actually officially said that they had, but the rumor was, and I certainly heard Greg or possibly James Tozel mention it on the Eurosport 
commentary that I watch and listen to. And Reading was making markedly better starts. So I think, you know, you can do the math on that one and work out what's going on. Again, BMW a bit tight-lipped about the inference that their own in-house equipment, you know, is substandard and requires upgrade by a specialist third party. But fair enough. I mean, that's just a corporate company and the way that they behave. But if they're taking steps, that's the main thing. Mm, It'd be good to see them be more competitive. Yeah. Yeah. But the only problem with that is as soon as they that they're more competitive, the rumor is going to get more and more and more that BMW is coming to MotoGP. Mm, uh, I think that's what's going to happen, right? Because I mean, that's what everybody's going to want them to do. Well, and the other point, I suppose, on that, Jim, goes back to what we were just saying a moment ago, which is the BMW want to be left out of the European domination of the sport, which is kind of coming at the moment. So it might well tempt them to get back in there. I mean, I'd love to see BMW in there, but it'd take them quite some time and a truckload of money to make it work. But who knows? But here's my question for you. Is it... Carmelo was talking that, hey, you know, we lost Suzuki, but we have other people who are wanting to come to MotoGP. Who are they? Mm, well, that's the question that everybody's asking, isn't it? Because I'm like, I'm trying to think of like a big motorcycle manufacturer that like we're missing in here in some way, shape or form, right? It's only BMW, isn't it really? I mean, Triumph. Uh, that's all I can think of. Triumph are not really big enough, I don't think, to entertain it. I think Triumph is very happy just to have their engines inside of a bunch of Kalexes running around in Moto2. And quite honestly, it's a brilliant sound. So I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah. But... I mean, I, the only other, I think we've speculated on this in previous shows, is perhaps whether one of these growing Chinese manufacturers yeah. and brands might sort of see it as the sort of platform that they would want, which is obviously, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's, I just, it's just one. one of those things. I'm more inclined to think that that's just Carmelo Espaleta just blowing a bit of smoke, really, to say that, look, the championship's healthy. There's people queuing up to come in when actually think perhaps that's not that's a bit disingenuous i think that would be my honest opinion yes i think so without wanting to irritate anybody in positions of power that's true um bsb news bridge yeah uh, there was some racing last weekend but just before i talk about that briefly uh peter hickman who wildcarded at donington park in the world superbikes is also going to be getting a run out again this weekend in the czech republic so that's good we'll be keen to see how he gets on he rides uh, bmw and leon haslam was due to ride for pedicini kawasaki this weekend but he's actually been called up by the paymasters at Kawasaki to go and do some pre-Suzuka 8-hour testing uh, presumably in Japan so that's left a seat vacant and Peter Hickman's teammate in BSB a uh, young lad called Ryan Vickers he's been released for the weekend it doesn't clash with the BSB round but uh, FHO Racing who he rides for in BSB have very graciously allowed him to jump onto a Kawasaki for the weekend so he will be riding yeah, on the Pedicini Kawasaki in the Czech Republic this weekend so it'll be interesting to see how he gets on uh, the only other thing from me on bsb i know you've got some moto america that you want to talk about in a minute jim it's going to be good brands bsb was last weekend not a massively action-packed weekend compared to some but we had wins for jason o'halloran on the saturday and then uh, young taron mckenzie won both of the races on Sunday so that's put him into this uh, showdown as we have in the championship over here because uh, he's coming back from uh, several quite nasty injuries earlier in the season so all three wins for the McCams Yamaha team this weekend so hopefully some people got to see that on some of the various racing channels good races all three of them yep uh, let's talk a little bit of Moto America yeah here. just kind of give you a little update here's some news that I found interesting I think that applies to names or people that followers of Moto GP will recognize the first one is all about Josh Hayes um He's been on the show before. I 
Jim Race talked to Josh mm -hmm. a couple of different times uh, that I can remember off the top of my head, but it was announced that he would reunite with the Squid Hunter Racing team on their Yamaha uh, R6 uh, Supersport bike for rounds at New Jersey Motorsport Park and at Barber Motorsport Park this year. Well, it also came out real soon after that he would also be riding that Yamaha R6 in Supersport this weekend at Brainerd, which is happening this weekend, which is, as we said, this is July 28th for reference. So you might hear this after the racing in Brainerd, but uh, Josh Hayes will be riding on 600 again. So interesting to see Josh riding again because Josh is getting old. <laughs> yeah. Been around for a while. I think he is either second or tied with Miguel Duhomel for most wins in AMA slash Moto America road wow. racing. So yeah. relatively, you know, big name there. So then in the world in the superbike championship, we have a, finally have a new leader in the points standings, and that's now Jake Gagne, who has made up for two non-finishes that he had so far this year. And he did that by winning seven of ten races after those two non-finishes, which is quite an accomplishment for him to win those. And he now has a three-point lead over Danilo Petrucci. Now Petrucci has said that Gagne deserves to be leading the championship as he has been the better rider so far this year which I think is a nice thing for Petrucci to say, considering he did kind of put his foot in his mouth earlier this year with comments about track safety at Virginia Raceway yeah. and other places. I was just going to say, it's about time. He's overdue saying something nice about or to somebody in Moto America. So Correct. Cause, yeah, because yeah. he hasn't exactly made a lot of fans uh, whilst he's been here. He has uh, not endeared himself to the American crowd, which is definitely a bit different than you would have in Europe and what he's used to as you and Gregory Haynes rightly said, uh, you got to have some nads to ride some of these tracks that exist here in, oh, yeah. in the states. There's concrete walls and whatnot all around. It's uh maybe not as narrow as BSB, but definitely is there's some fast turns with some sketchy, close, immovable objects that exist uh here in the US, which is something that Petrucci's had to get used to. And like you said, he's not made kind comments about some of the safety teams and other things that have happened to him in his numerous crashes and falls here. So I don't know if it's a PR move or if it's a psych job for uh, Gagne, <laughs> but he's not going to, Petrucci's not going to move Gagne off of the top spot very easily. I, no, I don't think so. No. It's going to be uh, interesting to watch the two of them at uh, Pittsburgh here in a couple of weeks. I will be there at the Moto America round in Pittsburgh at the Pittsburgh uh, Motorsports Complex. So any of the fans out there of Motopod on the East Coast or anybody who will be there, hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at MotoRGV on both platforms and we can hook up, have a beer, maybe have some bench racing by the rv because we'll be camping uh, all weekend cool uh, that's that part about the Superbikes. And one last thing, somebody uh, might be very familiar with this name from the MotoGP paddock. One Ben Spees is one of six inductees to be honored during the 2022 AMA Motorcycle Hall of Fame induction ceremony that will happen on October 28th in nearby for me. It's only about an hour and a half. Pickering, <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> so Kenny Coolbooth will be inducted as well as Greg Hancock. Uh, Elfie Hotchkiss, Sandy Kosman, and James Stewart. So those are the people going mm. into the into the Hall of Fame this year. Interesting. So. Go Ben Spees. Elbows. Yeah. As he was Elbows. Called. That's right. Elbows will be in in the uh, Hall of Fame. I it was interesting because uh, uh, Kenny Coolbooth was going in. It's like I raced against Kenny Coolbooth dirt tracking uh, when we were amateurs really? and had just yeah had first turn um, pro. So to see him go in makes me feel really old. Uh, 
because he was younger than me when we were racing. I know that. And, uh, you know, uh, good to see James Stewart going in. I'm not up to date on the other two, what form of racing that those people partook here in the U.S., but uh, I'll have to look it up. But either way, congratulations to all those made into the AMA Hall of Fame. And that, I think, is about everything that I have from Moto America. Okay. Uh, th- just a couple of other things that just come to my mind. Sorry, this is a little bit kind of scattergun in the way that we're doing this this week. Ah, uh, that's how we always do it, Rich. Yeah. We had a question in from Paul Lang. Oh, yes. A week or so ago, this. Jim. And we, I, yes. I personally didn't get a, a chance to answer it. And and I think you and I, to be fair, and maybe Paul will be able to get back to us on this, will, well, we were a little bit unsure exactly what he was digging at. I've got it in front of me here, Jim. So I'll just read yeah. it out. Good. So, Paul, who's one of our Patreon supporters. So, thank you for that. Asks, what's the strategy of Ducati announcing no race direction for the second half of the season? Would love to hear analysis of this from a racing and a business perspective. Now, we were a little bit confused by the question. And as I say, hopefully, Paul, you'll be able to um, perhaps just fill this out a little bit for us. But reading between the lines, I'm wondering if this has something to do with Ducati perhaps saying that they're not going to impose any form of team orders. Because obviously, Banyaya has, well, he has quite a big points deficit to get over. And we don't know if there's going to be any repercussions of his recent getting on the wrong side of the law indiscretion, yes, whilst partying in Ibiza. I can't believe that's going to result in a race ban or anything like that. I just don't think that's the way the organisers are going to handle this one. So I'm, I'm not quite sure, Paul, if that's what you're asking about. But on the assumption that it is, I mean, from a sporting point of view, Jim, because there's two components to this. There's mm-hmm. the sporting side from a purist point of view. Should they fight it out for themselves? Or do you take the point that it's a team sport, so both riders or satellite riders on Ducati should come in and help. I'm not quite sure how they can do that because, I mean, they're all going as fast as they possibly can all the time. And I'm sure nobody's advocating for people to start deliberately blocking the Quattararos of the world or whatever that might entail. But there's obviously the sporting component. And then there's the, if Ducati don't win the championship, obviously that has a commercial impact to some extent, although that's hard to quantify, I suppose, other than the fact that the teams presumably get do get you know money for where they finish in the championship, what effect it has on bike sales and stuff like that is very hard to quantify but so there are two components to that and just interested in what you think yeah my take was a little bit different on this because i started thinking about it because again i was confused about it i again paul if you could clarify because my thought was after thinking about it for a while was maybe it was something to do with the fact that quattro was going to have the penalties at silverstone so with the ducati horde being up front would they kind of make it difficult for quattro to get back to the front like maybe have team orders if you will to let ben Yaya be at the front. So from that standpoint, from if, if that's the case, mm-hmm. this is my take. Um, one, this is not Formula One, okay? There's really never been team orders in MotoGP or the 500s as far back as I can remember. Now, some riders have come out and said, hey, it's the last race. I'll do what I can to help my teammate win the race, but it's not really done that way. Yeah. The only real example that I could give you, and this is how far back it goes, 2002, Bayless Edwards, Superbikes at, I th- what, what is the, Imola. Oh, Imola. Imola, yes, yeah. And so, who was, I can't remember who was riding with Bayless at the time. Uh, I think it was Rubens House. Yeah, Rubens Chouse, that's correct. That Rubens kind of put, how should we put this politely, a bit aggressive passing not once, 
not twice, but by my memory, three different times on Colin Edwards, right. where places were like, hey, you just don't do that kind of a thing. So not that the sport got a black eye over that, but perhaps Ducati may be thinking historically from this that we don't want to even remotely get into this area again. So they said, hey, we're not going to do anything like that. The other thing too is, is that it's, I think it's very easy to have team orders inside of Formula One because you have a radio that you can tell the other driver you need to move over. You hear it all the time if you yeah. watch a Formula One race. Oh, I'm faster than my teammate. Tell him to move over and let me buy. I can get to the guy in front. Oh, and then and there's always at the end, but hey, if I can't catch him, I'll let him back in front of me. Well, that's just jostling to beat your own teammate, yeah. which is on all the time in MotoGP. And as you rightly said, these guys, I think, are driven to win and they're all riding their asses off to do what they're doing on those motorcycles. So to try to do something else is not going to be easy to do as well, because as Colin did, he just simply put it back on Chouse and got back by. The faster person is going to find a way by. I mean, that was one of the things when I first started road racing, you know, some of the instructors and stuff that I had, some of the road racing schools and stuff, it was like, hey, look, you know, you just, the faster guy is going to find a way around you because he's faster than you. Yeah. So it's going to happen. You can try to hold it off, but they're going to kind of go by mainly because you don't have the other effects that like cars have aerodynamics and all those other variables plus it's not like uh, there's pit stops for changing tires like cars so you can wind up catching some other car who's due for a pit stop and his tires are shot and they're working around with this big wide object to keep you by there's a lot of room on a 30 foot wide racetrack for a motorcycle to go by another motorcycle so yeah I mean, I think Ducati, I think, are quite famous for not handling their riders terribly well. I mean, they do tend yeah. to fall out with people quite easily. But I think partly because I don't want to be sort of too kind of country specific here, but I mean, they're Italian. So, you know, I think they just like to let people race. And I think their attitude, and I think, you know, people like Davide Tardozzi has kind of said so much in recent years when they've been in the running. And I'm thinking more to Vizioso, who was running up for, what, two or three years in a row to Marquez, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think their view is that they want to win by winning. They don't want to win by stage managing, you know, or, or other sort of nefarious tactics of trying to hold other people up. And, and uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's not the way to go about the business of racing motorcycles in any category, let alone the premier class. But rather than picking all of the stitching out of it now, I guess really what we want is for Paul to perhaps clarify in a bit more detail what it was he was wanting to know. And then perhaps we'll pick it up on, you know, one of the next couple of shows. Paul Rias, you know, motopod at motopodcast.com. And we'll, we'll try to put find out exactly what you were asking hopefully we were we're close um but you know if, if we didn't hit nail on the head you know let us know we'll, we'll figure it out we'll delve deeper <laughs> try and muster up a cogent response um I just wanted to, uh, just going back to the brand's BSB thing, something just cropped into my head. Uh, so I was there on the Friday uh, just for the pre-practice one and two sessions and I had my Motopod jacket on and I had the first ever example of somebody coming up and tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, are you for Motopod? Which was very exciting, I must say. So shout out to Stephen from Salisbury. He was very kind to come over and introduce himself. Great pleasure to meet you, sir. He's a very recent convert. He's an ex-motocrosser or motocross fan and he's got into, yeah, road racing in recent times and happened to post the Motopod podcast and I was a subscriber and a listener, Jim. So that was very pleasing. Yeah. Hopefully you'll get to see a few of these people at some of the Moto A rounds that you're going.
going to as well. Hopefully. So that was that. That's everything from me on news and recent goings on. Uh, that's everything from me. Why don't you introduce your special interview, Rich? Yeah. Oh, I'm doing it again. Just a quick shout out to Greg Haynes from Eurosport. Uh, hopefully people listened to and enjoyed the interview that we had with Greg on 699. Uh, I thought it was a great chat. Greg, you know, very insightful and very generous with his time as ever. But yeah, show 700, just in recognition of the fact that we hit a big round number. Two things really. Simon Crafer has come on and had a chat with us in the last week or so. That chat is going to run to about an hour and a half. We'll talk about it perhaps next week, Jim, on the back of Talking Silverstone as well, because Simon and I got into a lot of stuff. I mean, always have been a massive fan of Simon Crafer. I loved his style on a bike. He was very distinctive the way he sort of climbed across a bike and was, of course, very successful in World Superbikes uh, and very successful in GP500 as well. I mean, he was the last person to win on Dunlops in 500cc. Yeah, Donington. At Donington Park. Yes, correct. So he was one of those rare beasts that jumped across from World Superbike and won on a 500 two-stroke. Not many people have got that claim. Uh, trying to think of who else did. Um, I mean, Corsa came across, could never really make it work. I mean, to be fair, there was a wide disparity in the quality of the machinery around that right. time as well. And obviously you had a certain Michael Doohan pretty much dominating everything. But Simon beat Mick Doohan at Donington on that day. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, that one's in the history books and it's never going away. So, yeah, thanks to Simon. Top bloke. Hopefully we'll be able to get him back on again at some point. He's a very busy guy, of course, but we took advantage of the fact that, well, I say we took advantage of the fact that he wasn't very busy because of the five-week break from racing. But anybody that follows his Instagram account will note that he's not particularly sat on his bottom at home in Andorra. He's a very busy guy. But uh, yeah, so hopefully people will enjoy listening to that. And although not quite sure how we're going to mix all of this in at the minute, I'm delighted to say, Jim, that as well as our mutterings today for 700, we've also managed to get what ranges between sort of 60 seconds or three minutes. And in one case, a, a good seven or eight minutes contributions from just about everybody that's ever been a part of the show so i hope this is going to be exciting for the long-term listeners so with the exception of jim race our lost friend we have bob jules dave harry scott Derek, martin skyler andy and len and we also have a contribution from phil hall in australia as well who you might remember did a lot of coverage for us at the uh, philip island classic uh, over yes. the years and i think that event's going to be coming back on as well so maybe we might even get phil to do some more for us on that so a massive massive thank Thank you to all of the ex-show hosts who've given up some time to come on and get those those little sound bites and to tell us what they enjoyed about Motopod and just to bang the drum, really. And uh, I hope all the listeners and the, particularly the long-term listeners will very much enjoy listening to those familiar voices. I think it's going to be a very cool walk back down memory lane. Yeah. Now, Jim, question. Should I put them on in chronological order or do we just mix it up? What do you think? Uh... I think chronological order might be fun. Yeah. Okay. Just so that everyone could kind of have, see the, a progress through time. Yeah. Because most people are going to remember in chronological order anyway. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what we shall do. So that'll come into the mix a little bit after the Zoom Zoom that will follow this. All righty, folks. Uh, after that, there'll be a bunch of uh, little interviews. Then Simon Crayfire will be there with Rich. And until we get back with Silverstone that's this weekend, I want you all to ride safe. And make sure you listen to the very, very end because there'll be one or two little Easter eggs hiding at the back. See you next Ooh. time. <laughs> Hello, this is Bob Hayes, the first host of Motopod. When I first started doing the podcast in June of 2005, I had no idea where it would go. I was living in a small town and I didn't know anybody who was interested in MotoGP, but I wanted to talk about it with other fans. The podcast worked well as an outlet for that. At the time, I think it was the first podcast about MotoGP, and I was surprised at how much it grew while I was doing the show, and I'm thrilled to see that it's still going after 17 years. 
A lot has changed since those first clumsy episodes of MotoGP OD, as it was called at the time, including the name of the show. We've had many hosts come and go. There have been many other shows about motorcycle and auto racing that have come and gone. And, of course, the sport itself has seen many changes in rules and teams and riders over the years. But some things remain the same. We have passionate hosts that are willing to put in the time, effort, and yes, even the expense of creating a podcast. We have a fantastic audience that listens to the show, and of course, we have the sport that we know and love. 17 years and 700 shows is a long time, and I'm happy to see this milestone happen. And here's raising a glass to the next 700 shows, and who knows how many years. Keep on listening, and most of all, keep on supporting MotoGP and all forms of motorsport. Hey everyone, Jules Chisak here. It's hard to believe it's been 17 years since Bob Hayes started this thing, and I'm proud to have been a part of its history. Massive congratulations to Rich DeWitt and Jim McDowell on this 700th episode. They're making the show better than ever. I also want to give a huge props uh, shout-out to Len Padilla, who works behind the scenes uh, and keeps things operating there. And although our most colorful past host, Jim Race, is no longer with us, I hope it's not too presumptuous for me to say something on his behalf. Here's to the Motopod hosts and the listeners. Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about hitting 700 episodes. I can't believe it. My name's Martin Darlington. I was a co-host from 2010 uh, through to about 2016, although I faded off rather wistfully uh, towards the end. Bob Hayes, the original founder, Bob Look what your baby's grown up to become. Incredible. Uh, It just goes to show the show is greater than the sum of its parts as far as co-hosts go. Uh, Bob then brought in Jules Chisek, my very good friend, and Jim Race. Wherever you are, Jim, may you be resting peacefully. Uh, Liam Schubert, amongst others. uh, And Jim and Jules brought me in. And then succeeding me, we had Harry Lloyd and Dave Neal. And now we've got Richard and Jim and Andy and all the other guys who have just kept it going. Uh, Absolutely brilliant. Loving it. Still will make the odd contribution uh, if required. And hope you guys enjoy the rest of this show and many, many more. Hey, Motopod fans, this is Len, site maintainer and occasional host. Thanks to all of you for listening to the show, and a special thanks to the donors for keeping it running. Big congratulations on 700 episodes to all the former and current hosts. Bob, Jim, Jules, Martin, Scott, Harry, Dave, Skyler, Derek, Andrew, Jim, and Rich. Great work to everybody, and here's to 700 more episodes. Hey everybody, Scott Bolton here, former contributor and part-time co-host of Motopod. Just wanted to drop by and give a hearty congratulations to the show for the 700th episode. It's quite an accomplishment. I remember the 500th episode show. It seemed like a real milestone. And to see 200 more episodes in the books is, uh, well, it's a testament to the longevity of the show. Uh, Big uh, kudos to Rich and Jim for keeping the show rolling on and uh, hopefully for many more episodes to come. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll see you at the races. Hello, and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. My name is Harry Lloyd, uh, and it has been a little while, everybody. Uh, I'm 90% sure that was the uh, the intro, but 
as I said, it has been a little while. Hope everybody is going good, going well, uh, to be grammatically correct. 700 episodes. It has certainly been an adventure for the old Moto Pod. Uh, so yeah, you know, shout out to everybody who has been involved from Jim Martin and Jules at the start to uh, then, you know, land me, Dave, Phil Hall, everybody. And now the lads, Rich and the lads doing it, uh, doing it now. I hope everybody is still enjoying Motopod. You know, you definitely see a lot more, a lot more podcasts uh, around there now. But, you know, Motopod was the trendsetter. Nobody else has 700 episodes. So fair play. Yeah, I don't know. Little little update about me. Uh, originally left the um, left the old Moto Pod uh, to go and work for Dorna. They weren't too keen on having all of their uh, all their secrets revealed, and since then bounced around a little bit. Uh, some people may have seen that I was working for the mighty Mahindra in Moto Three during their uh, their glory days of fighting for the occasional victory, uh, and now I work for Repsol Honda. So that has been uh, worked with them since twenty nineteen. So it's been, been a very interesting time, but, uh, but no, it wouldn't change it for the world and definitely pretty much all down to, all down to Motopod. Uh, so, you know, huge shout out, uh, to everybody and thank you for, for the guys and gals who are still out there listening. Yeah. Let's see what the, let's see what the future holds. And he's looking forward to the best season ever, which, um, I don't know, this season's maybe not that great. It's a little boring, isn't it? But anyway. Uh, I'm rambling on. So thank you everybody for listening. Hope everybody out there is all good and well. And yeah, we'll we'll, uh, we'll see you around. Remember, lots of lots of nice things about about Repsol Honda. Yeah, that's that's what we're looking for. Thanks everyone. Bye. Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode 700. 700, fellas. Congratulations! What a milestone achievement. Congratulations to everybody that, that's been involved over the years. Uh, Bob, who I unfortunately never had the chance to host with. Len, Jules, Martin, Jim Race, God bless him. Andy Course and the man I did the most shows with, the good Lord Harry Lloyd. Uh, latterly, Skyler, Jim, Derek, and most recently, Rich. Seems only last week that we put episode 400 together back in 2014. And uh, how time flies and people move on and uh, lives change. It's a, an incredible achievement, gentlemen. You should be very proud of yourselves to get to episode 700. Um, a huge thank you to the listeners for your unwavering support over the previous 699 shows from a time before podcasts were even a thing. I'm proud to have been a small part of Motopod and that will remain for a long time. Uh, and I wish you all the very best. Here's to the next 700 shows and uh, keep up the good work, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. All the very best. My name's Philip Hall and um, I've been asked to uh, provide a little bit of uh, a story about my involvement with Motopod, and I'm more than happy to do that because it's been a real good ride. Um, I first found out about Motopod in 2012 when Ed Hazer came out to Australia for the annual Island Classic at Phillip Island, and he brought with him a voice recorder that belonged to Jim Race from Motopod, and uh, in the process of conversation, he explained to me that Jim had asked him if he would do some interviews with people while he was out here racing in Australia. 
uh, it didn't take very long after the meeting started and things got going that Ed realised that he was going to be way too busy with uh, his racing commitments and, and uh, preparing his bike and learning a new track and all the other things that, uh, that went with a, a high-profile meeting like the Island Classic uh, to be able to have time to do the interviews as well. So at the end of the first day, he came to me with the, the voice recorder in his hand. He said, look, he said, I'm not going to be able to do this. He said, uh, he said, we've been talking in the car. He said, you seem to have a fair idea of what's going on around here. He said, would you like to do it instead? And I said to him, look, yeah, I don't know, mate. I said, it's not really my place to, to, to say. I said, you, you'd need to clear that with Jim first, because he mightn't want anybody apart from him doing it. And uh, Ed said, no, 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 it'll be right, it'll be fine. Just go and get a couple of interviews if you can. And he said, uh, Jim, Jim will be happy with, it, with whatever you can give him. Well, I had photographing uh, commitments as well, but I managed to find the time to do uh, some interviews uh, during that time while the race meeting was on. And uh, I actually found that I really enjoyed it. That's probably because... You've probably already noticed that I've got the gift of the gab. And uh, it's also because of the fact that a lot of the people I was interviewing were people who I already knew. And that helped a great deal. And I also found very quickly that if you asked people nicely, you got pretty much anything that you want. Even though they were busy, uh, they would often say, look, come back later. And if you came back later, they'd be more than happy to sit down and have a chat. What I did find most importantly was the fact that people were willing to sit down and talk for a while. They weren't really that interested in a two-minute sound bite, and uh, I found that I could easily ask them to sit down for 10, 15, 20 minutes and talk to me about all sorts of things related to their racing, and they seemed to be more than happy to do that. And it occurred to me later, of course, the fact that we are all uh, pretty egotistic people in this game and asking a rider to sit down and talk to you about his racing was not really that difficult a thing to do. So I think I recorded about seven or eight interviews and uh, I gave the voice recorder back to Ed uh, when he left to go back to the States and when he got back I got a phone call from him couple of days later and he said man he said I listened to those interviews on the aeroplane he said they were fantastic he said Jim is going to absolutely love these and I said you sure he said oh he said fantastic he said you might score yourself a job here <laughs> and anyway as it turned out that's exactly what I did because uh, from 2012 through to 2019 I represented Motopod at uh, each of the uh, International Island Classics at Phillip Island and I also uh, represented Motopod at three World Superbike events at Phillip Island as well, and uh, filled up my voice recorder with dozens of interviews ranging from half an hour to well over an hour of all sorts of interesting people. And uh, it's something that I thoroughly enjoyed doing, and I feel rather proud of the fact that that's a little part that I've had to play in the, uh, the life of uh, Motopod and um, I know from the feedback I've received from other people uh, that they have uh, enjoyed greatly listening to uh, the interviews that I've been able to do. There have been so many highlights I couldn't even start. Of course there have also been some lowlights as well. Uh, I recorded three uh, interviews with the late Ralph Hudson who became 
a very close friend of mine during uh, those times, and I still miss him dearly. And uh, knowing that somewhere out there in the ether is not only documented, written down story of uh, Ralphie Hudson, but also his voice and uh, his perceptions, his ideas, uh, his experience of what it took to become the fastest motorcycle racer in the world. And I'm very proud to have had a part to play in that. Uh, I also couldn't have known at the time that when I recorded the interview with Dennis Curtis from CMR Racing Frames, that uh, that wonderful gentleman had very little time left with us uh, before he departed suddenly. And I'm delighted that I managed to get an interview with him as well. And I'm pleased that I made a lot of close friends uh, people who I never would have met otherwise, or at least I would have only had a passing acquaintance with, and I was delighted to be able to do that. The highlight of my time with Motopod, well, without doubt, the highlight of my time, uh, apart from Ralph Hudson, uh, was uh, interviewing with Mike uh, Edwards from the uh, Team GB, who came out here uh, racing a bike for Roger Winfield's uh, Team GB. And uh, in the process of the interview, um, I found that Mike was a very entertaining character. And I said to him at one stage, I said, Mike, tell me, what's it like to ride an XR69 Suzuki uh, around Phillip Island? And he looked at me and he said, well, he said, it's a little bit like dancing with a fat lady in a phone booth. And um, without a doubt, that was the quote of the meeting uh, that year and probably the quote of all of the time that I've had uh, spending with Motopod. It's been a real privilege to work this side of the fence. Hopefully there will be an International Island Classic again very shortly. And um, if I'm allowed, I'd love to be able to go and do that uh, for Motopod again. But uh, my memories of Motopod are great ones. And um, I'm pleased to have had a little part to play uh, in the life of Motopod. And um, I wish everybody involved a very happy 700th anniversary. Hello, Richard and Jim. It's Dave Neal's co-host Andy Kors here from Switzerland. So happy to see Motopod continuing to go from strength to strength in 2022 and now hitting its 700th episode. Huge thanks to all those listeners over the years for your support and to all the people past and present who have been involved in creating and delivering the podcast. And may I say what a great time it is to be covering the sport we love. We've been enjoying great domestic racing this year in Moto America and BSB and the World Championships of World Superbike and especially MotoGP have been brilliant to watch and follow. Finally, a special thanks to the current host Jim and Richard who I know are working really hard taking the podcast to the next level. So I'm just going to settle back with a small libation and let you joints crack on. Hey, Motopod listeners, this is Derek saying hi. Uh, for any new Motopod listeners, I was a host from 2017 through the end of 2019. And I'm just checking in to say a big congrats to the Motopod team for making it to episode 700. You know, a lot of work goes into putting these shows out. And recently, Jim and Rich have been doing a really great job. Uh, so again, a huge congrats to them and everyone who's kept the show going for so long. I was asked to pick out a favorite moment of mine from the time I had on the show, and I have two, both being from times I went to races and was actually able to meet up with other Motopod hosts. Um, the first time this happened was 2018 at the MotoGP round in Austin. Finally met up with Jim, Skyler, and Len in person. I uh, was able to talk to some of the listeners as well. We had a little bit of a meetup, so that was cool. And uh, Matt Oxley joined us for dinner. So between you know finally meeting the hosts, speaking to some of you guys, and then also just hearing the stories from Matt, uh, that was a pretty, pretty memorable, incredible time. 
so yeah that was a good one and the second one was in 2019 i was in the uk and headed up to the bsb round at cadwell park uh i met up with dave neal who was excellent uh it's his home track and he really just showed me uh one of the best times i've ever had at a racetrack so yeah just the the tight twisty nature the the bikes those riders are going so fast knowing they don't have any rider aids watching them shoot over the mountain uh it it was really cool so yeah those are some of my most favorite memories associated with the show and again a huge congrats to the team for getting to episode 700 Hey, Motopotter Skyler here. It's been a while since I've been on the show. Hope everyone is doing well. I still keep tabs on the show. I think Jim and Rich are doing a fantastic job on keeping things going, getting us to 700 episodes. That's a crazy number when you think about it, right? I remember listening to the show when it was sub-50s in the very early days. And then joining, I think I joined around like the 400s or something like that. I can't even remember, but uh, maybe even later than that. I, I don't know. It's been such a, a crazy time. But, you know, big congrats on everyone that's been involved on, you know, the show. Uh, from our veterans, you know, Jim and Jules. And, of course, you know, Bob in the beginning. And then bringing up, you know, such strong presenters as Harry and Dave and and Martin, really holding it down there and, and expanding the work that Jim so tirelessly put into the show. You know, we got a lot of background guys, you know, with Lynn helping us out, keeping things technically afloat and training a lot of us newbies when we first came in. You know, be, you know, and the guys that were here even short term still had a big impact, you know. Uh, you know, having Derek on the show was a great insight. And of course, Andy Course getting in there and doing so much amazing work, bringing in the BSV aspect and, and having such a great, wonderful radio voice. And, you know, finally bringing in Jim, you know, tons of knowledge, adding another Jim to the show. I know a lot of people might've got confused by that. He does such a great work in taking over the show and running point and then adding new features and new segments. It's been really cool. And then, of course, Rich just stepped in like he's been doing this the whole time, barely a nerve on the guy, delivering it, keeping the show up to its standards, getting back to expanding and getting interviews and stuff that we all love. So big congratulations to everyone. Uh, especially Jim and Rich for continuing on and getting things done. And big congrats and thank you to all of you wonderful fans that have kept the show going, given us inspiration to talk about motorcycle racing and motorcycles in general. And, of course, to the lovely donors that have kept the lights on here in the Motopod. Until next time, everyone, this is Skyler. Take care. Hi, everyone. Rich again here. Now, we've got a huge treat for you on this is going to be our 700th episode of MotoPod. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Simon Crafar back onto the show. Now, Simon, you last featured on the show back on episode 572, which looking back through the old archive was on the 21st of August 2018. So rather a lot's happened in the world since then. But you spoke on that occasion to a friend of the show and your good friend, I know, Len Padilla. So first off, here we are in 2022. How are you, sir? Really good, extra good right now because of holidays. Home, you know, it's yes, sunny in the mountains, not snowy, and uh, here with my little family and dogs. So, yeah, couldn't be much better. And you're in Andorra, I think, is that correct? Is that yes. your kind of European yep. base on the side of a mountain in Andorra, well out of town? When I yep. say well out of town, it probably without traffic, probably seven minutes to town, but re- feels really remote where we are, which is just how I like, you know, I'm uh. 
a country boy at heart, that's for sure. I, don't, I can't handle more than about two days in the city, and I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I want to run away. <laughs> yeah, I know how you feel. And I guess you must bump into quite a lot of MotoGP riders and, and various riders from one series or another, because Andor is a bit of a hotspot, isn't it? Yes, yeah, we do see um, a bit of each other. Having said that, I think everyone kind of is the same when they're in Andorra. They're doing their own thing, you know, like catching up with their loved ones, um, getting some training in, getting some, you know, groceries in the in the cupboard and that's about it you know mm. they want to disconnect rather than go hang out you know they recover and then it's back to the racetrack wherever yeah. that is i've got to say and swapping a few emails when we were trying to get this call organized although it's the sort of the enforced five-week moto gp summer break you don't appear to be taking your foot off the gas you're a very busy chap <laughs> Oh, it feels like I've been, it's pretty laid back. I mean, I've been trying to do some stuff with the kids, you know, with the family. Um, we had a family holiday planned, actually go to Portugal um, on the hill above the circuit at Porto Mayo. Oh, yeah. And had that all organized, but a couple of, well, basically an opportunity to get something fixed on my wife's eyesight came up. And because of the holidays, they said they were very quiet. They can do it now. And we kind of went... It's more important than the holidays. Let's yeah. do it. So I'll be honest, I'm not suffering at all. I'm, I mainly want to take them away, family holidays, because they're here all the time. So for me, it's perfect. You know, I'm, I'm glad to be home. Yeah, I'm sure. Right. Let, let's get into some MotoGP stuff then. Where do we start with MotoGP 2022? I mean, parking the Suzuki situation to one side just for a moment. Can you pick out one theme or surprise from the season so far? I mean, is there anything that really grabs your attention that you didn't expect? Uh, I mean, the biggest one, I've said this before, the biggest one is is Aleish for me because of, I mean, we knew he could get a podium from last year, you know, yeah. but for him and Aprilia to step up the amount they have, you know, and that last bit is the hardest, you know, to it's one thing to get to the podium, but to be the fastest at Essen was very impressive. And I mean, he's impressed me all season. So is Aprilia. So they have to take the crown for, for that prize for me. Biggest surprise this season, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I always say that I don't think we should be so surprised about Elation away because, I mean, he did some pretty good stuff on the Suzuki back in the day, didn't he? And he put the, the old CRT bike into places where nobody really expected it to be placed. So, I mean, he's got a lot of talent. I just, has it just not had a chance to show it? I agree, especially when you say about the CRT bike. That's where I really started to be an Elation supporter. I remember putting on something on social media when he got that awesome result at Hareth. Yeah. You know, and I was like, wow, this kid's going somewhere. And um, I, for a laugh, tweeted Suzuki, you know, because I know David Abrevio from years before mm-hmm. um, when he worked with Hager and Hager and I at the eight hour. And, and so I messaged him on social media saying, hey, I think Alicia's the man. And I didn't, you know, to put on your bike. But I didn't know they'd already done the deal. Oh, wow. so, so that he joined in and said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take that, you know, played along with my. Uh, so I've been a supporter of his since back then. But I have to admit, 10 years or so in MotoGP without more results was not what I expected. And it's the reason I didn't expect him to have such an impressive run this year. And I'm not trying to put the boot in. I'm just looking at results, statistics, you know, the likeliness. And he's really surprised me. And uh, to move into the very top, you know, be 
the fastest man to challenge a few times now and be so consistent is damn impressive. It's very hard for anyone to do. Very, very few riders ever get to do that. Yeah. And I've got to say hats off to him and Aprilia. I'm straying off the script already, but I don't think I'm going out on too much of a limb to say, I think that ride he put in in Assen was one of the best rides I think I've ever seen. Yeah. Coming from 16th or whatever it was and through to fourth. I mean, it's a shame he didn't get the podium, but what a ride that was. Well, it's the sort of thing um, we've come to expect of Mark, you know, and Valentino in his day or that sort of level guy. So, yeah, uh, just to repeat, I think I've put across why he's got to take the first prize for biggest surprise. Um, And and I'm not meaning that derogatory at all. It's just an extra step on what I thought was possible. Yeah, well, I think it's a very pleasant surprise, isn't it? Both in terms of Aprilia and and Alege. Now, I've got to go go on to a couple of little technical things because I know that's where you're so, you know, so strong in terms of the coverage that you do on Dorna. So uh, something that generates a lot of discussion on the show, let's say, and a lot of listener feedback on both sides of the fence on this one. What's your view on ride height devices? I mean, are you in the camp of get rid or are you a prototype purist and you just think that, you know, you want to see as much unrestrained technical innovation as possible? Well, I mean, the real me loves the innovation you know I, I really do and if you can make a bike accelerate harder you make it more stable in certain areas because the center of gravity is lower not just the acceleration phase you know they're yeah they're saying the the top speed sort of areas that the bike is more stable i love that they've done it uh the the worrying point well the one of the worrying points is safety meaning i've had more than one engineer point out to me uh, in the early stages before I'm talking two years ago, you know, when they really all working on them, an engineer pointed out that they're now mucking around with the structural part of the motorcycle, meaning the pieces that they take out to put this ride height device in are struts, you know, that mm. support the bike, you know, and suspension. And and now those struts are adjustable, you know, to make the device drop. And if it fails in the wrong area, it could be horrific, you know, like really, really bad. Yeah. And I think it, we got a taste of that when it failed on Maverick. Um, he, I think he was very lucky to get away with losing the front. I saw him lose the front and I thought that was it. But it, he lost the front for a reason, it turned out. And if you have that fail in the wrong turn, like I'm just thinking about the very, very fast ones, you know, and uh, that could be huge. Okay, that's one part of it. And you might agree or not, but when an engineer says to to me, I he's the guy making the part, designing right. it, and he's worried. And so it should be, you know, and if he's pointing it out, we should be, you know. <laughs> so then, but the big one for me, even bigger than that safety part, is that bikes are so fast that we've been asking, MotoGP's been asking circuits to move walls back for some time and they've been doing it for some time and now we've got to the point where they either can't because of the land they have got to the edge to or they can't afford to because they can't afford two million bucks to to modify things you know and grandstands and runoff area and walls and and so they're saying no they can't go back any further and then you let a device add another six to eight kilometers an hour like you know because it accelerates so much better off the turn the biggest worry for me is that we're not going to be able to go to some circuit soon and so to me that's when I draw the line and go the show is more important than the actual speed that we reach yeah because we're already restricting it you know with um, electronics that we can't just have free for all on electronics or free for all on a lot of things you know so why 
not restrict this if it's going to stop us going to the most beautiful old school tracks. And that to me is where I'd draw the line because it'd make me too sad if we have to go to a whole lot of more boring, more modern tracks just because of these devices. Telcodromes. Yeah, we don't want any more of those. Thank you very much. So in other words, you're what I would call a pragmatic purist then. you know. But, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, quite frankly, you know, who's going to notice the difference between a bike doing 216 miles down the straight at Mugello and a bike doing 205 or 210? I mean, it's, it's just numbers, isn't it, at the end of the day? Yeah. I mean, we want to see the fight, the show, and that's where also the wings come in. I have experienced recently on the Aprilia at Mugello at one of the most exciting sections of track. I absolutely love it. The last fascia cane, last turn, and the main straight where you go onto that blind brow, leaned over at even the stock thousands at 300 kilometers an hour now, and you have to fight to keep it stable, fight to keep the front on the ground. I love it. It, it is. It makes honestly makes me feel like a little kid. I know it might not be the right, but how I felt when I first started riding bikes, it's it's mad. And then you ride it with wings and go, anyone could do that. It's just the bike is glued to the ground, so stable. So I understand on one side how good the wings are, you know, how they are making a, a good effect in certain areas. But then I've heard riders multiple times over the last two years tell me that they hunt a rider down, get close, then can't pass because every time they get close on the brakes, it feels like someone's shoving them from behind because of the hole in the air that the rider in front is punching. And their bike now relies on that air to push on their wings to help them stop. And yep. so they almost run into the back, they lock the front, they run off the track and then start the hunt down all, or they crash. So it's stopping the fight. So there's the two different arguments on that as well, the wings. It's the age-old conundrum, I suppose. You can't stop the engineers developing new stuff, but sometimes I suppose the regulators just have to step in in the interest of the long-term viability of the sport, both in terms of finances and safety. They're always going to have to step in, uh, you know, at certain points. I'm not saying that get rid of it all, you know. It's just it needs serious consideration of we want the sport to be the fight that we've always loved, you know, and yeah. if that stops, and to me, is a real worry. And I think you should talk to riders as well and get their overall. I mean, you're always going to get uh, the riders who actually ride for the factory who has the best devices or wings are always going to be the ones that want to keep them, you know. But if you do an overall, I think you'll get, um, well, I mean, we've heard them talk about it. The majority go, look, it doesn't add to the show. You know, it's just more time and money spent on a certain area that doesn't help the race, you know. That's the feeling I get from majority of the riders, you know. I know it's a rules thing, um, but just talking about the suspension again or shape-shifting kind of devices, it's always surprised me a little bit that, you know, the engineers have had to circumnavigate their way around a ban on electronic sort of suspension systems, let's call them as a sort of general term. But it, yeah. it's always seemed to me that an electronic system, whilst it wouldn't solve the getting too fast argument, would be a more worthwhile thing to develop on a MotoGP bike because that seems to be much more transferable to road bikes in terms of trickle-down technology. They really are aren't they? I mean, the, the electronic suspension, when it first came, I didn't like it because, yeah, it made it possible to ride on both, but it didn't feel any good on the track um, because it, it just didn't give you feedback. I got rid of it as soon as I could on any bike I had, where the last few years, it's got pretty damn good. And it, just like on the cars now, you can have both your daily and your race vehicle in one with a click of some buttons, which yeah. is 
I think fantastic. So I agree with you, but that was long ago banned, wasn't it? Yeah. I do need to ask exactly why, because it was so long ago when it was banned. Um, I know it was a lot to do with money. It was going to be crazy investment to, yeah. but yeah, I would like to know actually why, what the, because it can't just be that when they're, where they're all on production bikes now. Sorry, I don't know the answer there. Sorry, what were you saying about the whole question was about electronic suspension? Well, no, it just seemed to be slightly, you know, the, the engineers will always find a way around something that's been outlawed and they'll come at it yeah. from a different direction. And now we've got yeah. these very complex mechanical, I guess, hydraulic systems, yes. which are making the bikes faster and they are prone to failure. Not that I suppose an electronic system wouldn't be prone to failure from time to time as well, but it kind of leads on to something else. We had a Motopod subscriber call just last weekend, in actual fact, and I mentioned that I was hoping to be speaking to you. So one of the guys on the call, in so many words, was asking about how you get such great access into the garages and to the looking at the bikes in terms of what's changed from almost session to session sometimes, but certainly race to race. So I'm sure your role in the paddock you know, demands a certain level of privileged access, but can you talk a little bit about the openness of some of the teams? I'm sure not all of the teams in terms of the relationships that you've built and the access that they give you to go and have a very close sort of scrutiny look at what they're doing. Yeah, um, yeah, it literally is session to session because I try to um, watch the bikes. I get a feel over a long period of time what rider um, setup each rider has. You know, I, I know, I mean, it takes a, a long time to build that up, especially at the beginning of each season of what a rider is using and where, when they find their base setting, you know. Mm. And then I recognize when things change, you know, when so I'm looking at where the steering head is for I did a tech talk on it a while ago what I'm looking for you know yeah. and so where the steering head has moved forward and back so basically they're changing the geometry but front wheel position you know the point from center of the axle center of crankshaft which I know is so important because the manufacturers all have a a working window of where their bikes work you know they know and they try to keep their riders in there or if someone strays out at least to warn them they're on the, you know, the edge of where their bike normally works with those tires. Mm -hmm. I say with those tires, because every time you put different uh, manufacturer or different types of tires in, the bike changes completely. <laughs> so, because yeah. this sport is all about getting the most out of tires. So yeah. if a new tire comes, the bike setup has to change, you know, and that's mm -hmm. why they don't change the tires too much because it causes chaos in the paddock. So um, just get back to your question. I watch the bikes warm up. I don't walk into the garage. I respect the garage area a lot. With my Dawn uniform, I am allowed more access than I even use. I try to, um, okay. you know, growing up in the garage, you know, as a rider and then as a technician, I really respect that's a working area of those guys. I do not want to disturb that because mm. you'll make them angry. That's a polite way to put it very quickly. And so I stay outside the garage, but the guys warm up their bikes. They have to wheel them out of the garage. So I'm standing with the other journalists right there. And then I can look at everything. I can duck around. I don't take photos in general because I don't want to upset the engineers or the engineers from the factory, basically. I don't want them to think I'm trying to steal ideas. If I do take a photo, it's of something I think is new and I compare it to the old one that I've got a shot of, you know, when I get back to my office or whatever, go back and forwards. But in general, I don't. And I, I've got a good idea of what each rider uses and what is changing, you know. Um, the other part of the question you mentioned about 
how the openness of the different teams. Yeah. Super interesting to me because you'd have, I would say, Honda at one extreme where I feel that the staff are scared to talk to me because the people above them might think that they are telling me something, you know? Yeah. They might argue that, but that is my impression, you know, from the very, like day one. And I think Honda are the most closed ones, you know? Yeah. The first to put the screens up when I when they realized I started saying things about their bike, they didn't like it, you know, that I was pointing out that that's an older chassis or they're running stuff from La. And so they, they're the first to put the screens up when they were in the garage so I couldn't see in, you know? So yeah, yeah. you have that extreme on one side and then the Aprilia guys would be the other extreme. I can literally say to the engineers, hey, you've got a new blah, blah, and they'll smile and know I'm not an idiot. So they won't <laughs> deny it. They'll be quite open about it. The, you know, if it's quite secret, they'll smile you know, like raise their eyes, point at me and go, you know, you spotted it. And maybe they'll comment nothing. But in general, they will give me something. They'll go, yeah, we're playing with this, you know, because we think this. And it is an awesome relationship to have, you know, to be Mm. able to. And it's not for any other reason that I think they are slightly more open people there they don't think they're going to lose something by talking to me it's already been seen they can't cover it up and they're just being straight up yeah they're also the same guys that when it's quiet time they'll go hey side do you want a coffee and i'll get to go in their garage they trust me enough that i'm not gonna say like i'm talking engines on the floor and you know and if i see something i'm not gonna burn them does that make sense yeah they trust that's the relationship yeah yeah and i also would never pull my phone out or something like that and then we go and have a coffee i can bounce ideas with them talk about things get ideas for the tech talks that i do ask a favor can you explain this and then there's different teams in various levels, you know, between Aprilia and then all the way up to Honda. Yeah, that, that's that's my honest opinion. I think implied in the question was that idea that, and you've just actually said what I was going to ask you was a, my sort of belief from the outside looking in. And I watched the Dorna feed, as you can probably guess. I was going to say that at one end, HRC looked like a completely closed garage with very little communication. And I was going to say perhaps taken KTM as an example where you've done some very detailed tech talk stuff with those guys in the past and they almost you sort of wonder why they would open up the garage quite to that extent almost in terms of technical secrets so I mean obviously they don't give everything away but um, it's so different between like you say those two extremes from one end of the pit lane to the other yeah fascinating psychology of it really well I actually asked Aprilia I think it's interesting to point out that they are the biggest movers technologically in the last two years. Yeah. And yet they're the most open. So I don't think that it always pays to be the most closed, you know. Mm. Uh, communication, as we all know, in every field, this is how I see it, uh, by bouncing ideas, talking with people, you it sparks new ideas you know what i'm saying yeah and by closing off and being insular i i mean it's it's fine if you are the best by a long way but uh, i don't think it my opinion is the go with your trailing you know it's yeah. only going to hinder it more but yeah you're right about ktm there i asked them why they let me see their engine on the dyno they let me see their chassis when i visited the factory last year they let me see what i recognized as the latest chassis they were using not some old one from two years ago that I expected to be in a jig and them showing me how they 3D print 
you know, all those chassis rails that you watch on the bike, they're 3D printed. That's not wow. tubes. Wow. So, and they're not tubes, they're half like C section. So if you look on from the inside, if the engine wasn't there, you'd see a hollow, you know, on those tubes. Wow. So that to me was like, wow, they let me see that and they're fine mm. with it. And I asked, why were you so open about? And they're like, no one else uses this steel chassis, you know? Yeah. So who's going to use it? You know what mm. I mean? So, uh, and we're, and they said, we're, we're changing, developing all the time. And we think we're well ahead on this. It's going to take a long time for someone to turn up and steal our ideas and go and beat us, you know? Yeah. So yeah, uh, I thought that was a pretty cool answer. Aprilia sort of interests me a little bit because although I've got a bit of beef with the way that they've handled the second rider in that team, not so much since, you know, the last couple of seasons, but certainly when Scott was there and definitely when Sam Lowe's was there, I don't think that they perhaps showered themselves in glory there. But anyway, without wishing to sound like a sort of cliched idiot, there is a kind of a passion and a joyousness about Aprilia, which I just think resonates. And obviously it's even more so now that they're really sort of coming strong. I genuinely believe from what I've seen looking from the outside is... It is a different place. You can't judge it as the same place before and after Massimo Rivola. You know, he's coming from F1. He seems like an absolute gentleman. Yeah. Um, I've seen him in quite a few different, how would you call it, um, positions, meaning where he could be grumpy, you know, where he could it could be difficult. And he handles it so calm and professionally and loyal. How I mean, to me, the loyalty they showed uh, Iannone was over and above what I expected, you know? Yeah, yeah I true. <laughs> and it feels to me that that's what he's brought in. So I think it's a different place than it was uh, a few years ago when, yeah, they had that tough time. And the bike was nowhere near as good, but I of think course. there was a different, men- little bit different mentality and management as well. Yeah. Sort of on a related point, I suppose, my next question was sort of coming back to the Japanese factories. I mean, how much trouble do you think the Japanese factories are in with regards to technical direction and sort of appearing from where I sit, which is completely outside of everything, of course, but they appear to be losing a lot of ground on certain development paths and in particular things like aero and CFD and this kind of stuff. Do you just think that there's something culturally that means that the Europeans are starting to really jump ahead in some of these areas? Hey, I've got to show my ignorance. And what does CFD mean? Oh, it's computational fluid dynamics. So it's this kind of computer-based aero technology. Okay. Very, very much prevalent in F1 and stuff. And I don't know if there's okay. any crossover with the F1 kind of fraternity on in terms of what MotoGP are going to, which is, you could say is a bit of a, a rabbit hole if you're not careful. But and you, you were talking about that earlier. But the Japanese seem to be struggling, or that's how it appears from where I sit. Yeah, um, I'd like to say for starters that I think the Japanese have a lot of knowledge and their bikes are beautiful you know when mm. I mean I stand next to all the Japanese stuff it is gorgeous you know the uh, I, I don't want to bore everyone but the the detail the you know the and in general reliability and everything we know about Japanese uh, machines I think I would not write them off at all. You know, I wouldn't say that that it's the beginning of the end for them. No, I think that this is, again, only my opinion, but I think COVID was really hard on them being so far away. I mean, it's it's hard enough uh, being England and there's a bit of water between, but a big bit of water and a time difference and a, a, a flight, you know, yeah. makes it, I think, made it really hard. And then... You know, while the Europeans are in Europe and yeah, they still suffered because the factories all closed down. And But then I'd like to throw in 
you know, there's the COVID bit, I think, affected them more. And then the second bit is, it feels to me that the Italians have a, another level of knowledge when it comes to aero. I agree. They're the first also to go get the devices going, you know. And um, this is the Italian manufacturers, Ducati and Aprilia. Ducati seemed two years ahead of everyone, you know. Yeah. And Aprilia seemed to do a good catch-up. Um, Yamaha too, you know, quickly. But when it comes to aero, to me, it feels like it's only Ducati and Aprilia that have it wired. You know, the others are using bikes that are motorbikes that they've designed and then they've put wings on, you know, and yeah. it feels like the other two are bikes that are designed with the wings in mind from ground up you know and from things riders have said kind of confirms that thinking you know meaning um uh, you know Leish said uh, yeah if you take you know he's up for taking all the devices off you know fair enough but we'd have to redesign our bike from you know we'd lose the last two years of development yeah because which totally makes sense uh, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand in this area at all. I didn't even know what the uh, the sh- abbreviation was. <laughs> so, yeah. But I understand from riding a bike, if you put kilos of downforce in a certain area, you have to change everything yeah. to suit that. And that's only a little window into it. You know, imagine as soon as you put these, uh, the downforce in certain areas, you have to change everything on the bike, you know, to get the balance back and use that advantage. Anyway, yeah, that's my opinion is that the Italians are a street ahead of uh, everyone else when it comes to the era. Segwaying neatly then towards Suzuki and the withdrawal, which came as a massive body blow to me, he says, showing up his um, (laughs) X-Star hoodie. Um, do you think it's a case of a large corporate that never really understood how to market itself in MotoGP? I know you just mentioned COVID and quite clearly that's had a massive effect on lots of these great big industrial firms. Or do you see something underlying? I mean, should we be worried about one or two of the other Japanese factories? Or is that because I could just see this wave of European You're factories. entering an area I have no expertise in, you know, and I'm not going to pretend that I do. Right. You know. my, no, my expertise is pit lane. What I see in feedback, you know, on that, I didn't see this coming i had no idea and i well the team didn't itself you know the mm. riders the yeah. the team manager nobody saw it coming so oh, sorry to let you down but i have no idea and i'm not going to pretend to my like i said my expertise is pit lane what's going on there and trying to see what i'm not meant to be seeing you know and trying yeah. to figure it out i was chatting to my co-host jim mcdowell about this the other day on the show and i was kind of likening to the european factories it feels to me are a little bit like the old enzo ferrari thing about you know he built road cars because he had to to fund the racing activity and it kind of feels a little bit like that with the Europeans sometimes whereas you look at the big Japanese firms maybe with the exception of Honda and HRC but you kind of see these great big industrial giants and the racing bit is almost a little tack on and they lose interest quite easily I think and I just wondered if that's what might have happened with obviously the financial results and what's been going on in the world with the board in Hamimatsu is it just sort of thinking we don't want to do this anymore because Suzuki are a weird company in the sense that they're not really in superbike I mean I know some people are running GSXs in some of the national, like BSB, for example, but they don't look to be particularly modern bikes. So Suzuki just, I find, is a curious company, really, given the degree of pedigree that they have in road racing. You know, when I said I like standing next to the beautifully made, I mean, Suzuki jumps out at me. Yeah, I think it's the most beautiful bike, hands down. Yeah. I think the best GP bike by a mile. It's it look, everything's in proportion and so yeah. well put together. It's gorgeous. But just to jump across the street bikes, I ran Suzuki's for 
my motivated school for 10 years and they are incredibly reliable what a fantastic right. uh i don't run them anymore i've got to deal with them this is just honest what i think yep. they are bulletproof and i don't think any other bike could put up with with what they do you know and that's what the japanese do you know when they came out with their gsxr i was disappointed it wasn't a cross plane or a, this is in 17 when it came uh-huh. i said to some suzuki staff i was disappointed it wasn't a cross plane or a v to make it have something cool you know something bark you know yeah which is what people buying sports bikes want and they explained to me that suzuki buyers riders expect the thing to be able to be thrashed around the world and survive and we couldn't get that real sort of reliability out of a v or a cross plane mm. well i know the cross planes can't do that you know with the extra vibration and talk and i'm like okay and when you know you only have to i'm no expert in this area again but you only have to look at why the majority of people buy japanese bikes you know in the world when you're talking little bikes and it is reliable transport you yes know? and why did people buy ducatis not for that for it's linked to their amazing race bikes you know it's, i yeah. think it's two different things isn't it yeah it is you know? yeah. so and now when you look at that you kind of understand that they have to have a different uh approach resales as well so yeah. and that's out of my uh remit so <laughs> i don't know i'm getting all dewy eyed thinking of the gsv uh 990 <laughs> moto gp bike from when it first went four stroke because that thing sounded awesome but it didn't have the results that um in general i know chris yeah. vermeulen and uh uh, John Hopkins, someone else I'm trying to remember, had good results on it, but it, in general, wasn't at the level that this new bike is. Yeah, Kenny Roberts Jr. was on it, wasn't he, in the early right. days exactly. as well? Yep. Yeah. Um, I want to sort of go on to talking a little bit about your riding career in a moment. So I didn't really want to talk about too much race by race stuff to do with MotoGP because there's been lots of talk about that already. But one thing I did just want to touch on, which I'm sure you will have an opinion on, is rules and penalties because I think it's a, an overriding theme almost of this year. And something I'm quite interested in, so I don't mind talking about it. Here. Okay, I'll preface my question by saying I guess this is a sort of an FIM rather than a Dorna issue to address in the sense that hopefully you you can comment fairly freely on this. So I think, you know, I our view on Motopod, and I'm sure you might have a completely different opinion about this, which is why it's interesting to talk to you, is that there are probably just too many rules, and I think compounded by a level of analysis available to the race stewards, uh, which probably might mean that their decisions are correct, technically, but they're so nuanced in their detail that from the outside, it kind of starts to look inconsistent. I don't know if that you think that that's fair or not. So my question has been, a, obviously, if you go anywhere near social media, which is always dangerous to do, but hell of a lot of criticism of the MotoGP stewards and one person in particular, much of which is quite unwarranted, I would say. But do you see that there's an unintentional kind of tarnishing of the action and kind of almost giving riders pause for thought in terms of whether they can race hard and overtake hard? Hey, I understand very much what you're saying, you know, and I want the racing to be as good as possible, you know. Mm, yeah. At the same time, it's got to be as fair as possible and they're using technology to try and do that and they have successfully I think used it to make it fairer you know so everyone gets treated the same when it comes to you know the track limits etc um I'd like to throw in before we go into more detail that I think no matter who does it they're going to get shit I hope I'm allowed to say that they're going to get it you know damned if you do damned if you don't yeah they're going to get 
because it, it's one of those jobs, isn't it? And oh. it's not going to be fun. You're always going to get some hassle. But <clears throat> like being the headmaster and, you know, nobody wants to get growled at and, you know, fen- uh, what do you call it? Detention, get back. And nobody yeah. agrees, d- thinks they deserved it. No, not nobody. Majority don't. I know Freddie is a really good guy. He's a good, uh, probably too caring, too uh, nice for such a difficult job. You know, uh, he'll, he'll be really suffering from all this you know, social media crucifying him. Yeah. I think he's done really well with the Moto3 class because that was a nightmare, you know, to have to deal with. Yeah. I've said it before. I'm not a real big fan of that class, meaning not the kids riding. I love them. You know, it's the size of bike and uh, how it in encourages you to ride like a lunatic on entry and not have to manage stuff as well and take risks and i think it's because the bike's so small you know it's so yeah. little and it's nothing to do with riding moto 2 and moto gp so that's why i don't particularly like it you have to go to moto 2 to have all your rough edges knocked off and smooth your riding out stop moving around so much and basically smooth it all out and that's touching on it lightly but that's why they have so many hassles in that class the slipstream so important and they're young guys making mistakes which is also what the class is about and they do need uh freddie and their teams to get on board to teach them the right mentality you know that yeah. is all and i think freddie's doing a pretty good job in there of it's taken a while but i can see some result yeah moto 3 is markedly better this year isn't it in terms of on-track behavior i think it's chalk and cheese to even last season yep so and riders are taking on board what he's saying is go out and do the work every successful rider knows it all comes down to the work you do and not following someone else for one lap and waiting a bit it doesn't work like that you know so that's what he's trying to encourage and like i said you have to have teams on board as well but anyway it's a not an easy one the moto three problem then they go to track limits I really liked how it used to be, meaning if you're on the green, get something touching the curb, the white line, the end of the curb you were in, where now it's the last years it's changed to, you know, those sensors. Mm. Because I understand why they had so many photos and and had to go through for hours that they were there till 11 o'clock at night going through everything from each class. And they're going, this is not sustainable. What are we going to? So they put sensors on the curb. So they get a photo of the sensors triggered and look, it's proof you're out. But it's not as out as it used to be so i agree (laughs) with you on that i would like it to be a little bit more out maybe they can move the sensor a bit further away (laughs) i I don't know i don't know hey but you got to remember excuse to go into detail like i said i'm interested in this you got to remember that all they're trying to do is take away people stealing advantage of riding on the green stealing it from their opposition meaning if the big one is if you try and do a lap time you know in qualifying or the last lap of the race and you're on the green so you're winning something stealing something that isn't if it was grass because that's how they look at it the green is grass okay no it's not anymore but pretend it is you should lose some time if you ride on the grass and that's what they want you cannot take any time advantage riding on the grass and then on the last lap you can't use it to win a race so uh, everything there i think is correct i would love it to be a little bit further away those senses you know and if yeah. I, I could influence that i would i'd like it to be a a little bit further away so we're not looking at the tv going what he lost a position because of that just to take away that 
uh, feeling, you know? So it's more obvious that you've done it, yeah. Yeah, the thing that really gets, you know, I'll go on the show and a lot of the listeners is, you know, when you get this unfortunate situation where somebody rocks up in part firme and then is told a few moments later, oh, actually, you didn't finish third, you know, you've been docked a few seconds because you went into the green on the last lap or whatever, and you have this kind yeah. of awkward changeover in the in the sort of the podium order. It's a bit yeah. tricky um, to watch. <laughs> the thing is that after what I've just told you, do you understand why that they've done it, you know? And I do. And you're thinking, if you don't do that, then people are just going to ride on the green as much as they want, you know? Yeah. Then it's not fair. That's not how it's meant to be, you know what I mean? Green yeah. is grass. I don't know what the answer is. I'd prefer just a little bit more leeway, you know, those centres moved out a little bit. And the other thing is about cutting chicanes and stuff. But in general... All it is is that you're not allowed to gain. Mm. As long as you don't, if you're pushed, for example, and onto the grass, if you don't gain some time, then you're all right. And there's a lot of really fair stuff behind it. I think a lot of the anger from the viewers comes from not knowing, which is a bit of a problem that they're not going this is why so we understand because i've been lucky enough to be able to ask you know because yeah. we're staying at the same hotel or bump into them and, and say this one i was curious why because the viewers and i are all going why then when i heard the reason i'm talking for the last five years when i heard the reason i go i'm talking oof, more than nine out of ten times i'm going oh man that makes sense i never thought of that or there's something else behind so yeah. That is another part of the problem, why people get angry, because they're not actually informed why it's happened. And then the last thing I've got to say after saying that I really, you know, nine out of 10 more times agree with what they're doing is the big one that everyone's talking about now. And I'm sure that's why you brought this up is Fabio getting penalized, you know, yeah. for knocking Aleish off the track. To me, the anger comes down. You know, I'm talking from Fabio, from the team manager, from us, you know, meaning the viewers, comes down to Banyaya knocking Martin off at the first race. Yeah. Not getting penalised. Miller did it to Mia at Portimao. Yes. Same crash. Yeah. Then there was the other one, the Tucker incident, turn that's one. That's been the one, hasn't it, that's really got yeah. people's ire. But all of those three, and then Fabio, that I think that's the problem why we're all going, what? You know, not that Fabio didn't deserve one. I think that all of them did. Mm. But are they changing that and didn't tell us? Meaning they've gone, hey, enough of this. We've got to, uh, someone, you've got to be what is it? There's a punishment for the consequences of your actions, you know? Yeah. And if you look at it only at that, as Fabio came onto TV and said, I was there waiting for his first interview, you know, we were alive for the, after the flag. And he says, that was a rookie mistake. I can't go winning a championship like this, but it was along those lines what he mm. said. He knew. He took a bigger bite than was possible. I've kind of explained a couple of times that Aleish put it a really cool way. He said that, I was damn fast in that corner. And I think basically he was saying that Fabio thought that I was as slow as the other people he had be overtaking there and that he could come from that far back and make it. But with me, I was as fast as Fabio in that corner. So we ended up in the same spot. It didn't work, you know. And yeah. I thought that was a pretty cool way to put it and a nice way to put it from Malays, you know, a fair way to put it. And I think it's true, you know. He did uh, what it was too, oh, what's the word, optimistic, you know. Yeah. And it was only by pure luck Alesh stayed on and pure luck, not luck, amazing riding that he came back to fourth. But did he deserve a long lap penalty? Most people go, no, no. But along that penalty is what, between two and three seconds? 
mm. normally. Mm. And do you deserve two or three seconds for destroying somebody's race? Now, Leish would have won that race, you know, in my opinion. Yeah. And yeah, I think he does deserve that. But so did everyone else. And Tucker deserved a lot more. I, I would have not had him riding in Germany, you know, and right. not just because of that one. Uh, I'll go into that. So I watched Tucker. He's riding for his career, you know. Yeah. His career is on the line. I understand he. But I saw him after a couple of other ones I won't mention. I saw him bump Fabio off the track. Fabio passed him clean on the lap one at Le Mans at the end of the first lap. Fabio's trying to win the race. He's trying to come through from an average start. Then passes Tucker cleanly and Tucker stuffs him on the very next corner, which is that double right on, pushes him off the track. And I'm like, I hit my head in my hands going, Tucker, you know, riders hate other riders pushing them off the track when they do not have the pace to fight with them for the win. Why do that to him? It's like, that's how I feel about it. And I know that's how other pro riders feel when they get punted off by someone not the same speed as them, you know, a chance yeah. of winning. And so I was already going, if I, I was watching that, I would have a guillotine hanging over figuratively, yeah. Tucker's head, explain it to Tucker, no more of that, or you're going to be penalized, you know. Then we go to Magello and Tucker it was involved with Alex Rins, who was famous for being the cleanest rider in the grid. But the video shows nothing incriminating either way. It's just a big coming together. Alex Rins was filthy angry. And I know why, but the video doesn't prove that. It's not enough to see what's going on. So I bet it would have been really easy to drag Tucker in again and go, look, Tucker, we're not going to give you a penalty. But you understand you're involved with someone who's known as the cleanest guy, you know, He's filthy angry that we're not going to punish you. And again, you're sitting in front of us. So no more, Tucker. Next one. And we maybe we would have avoided turn one at Barcelona. Yeah. And if we didn't, he wouldn't have been riding in Germany. That's how I see it, you know. Mm. So I think we've got, with all these ones I've mentioned earlier in the season, and then we've got to Fabio getting a penalty, which... I think he did, if everyone else had. I still think he does deserve that very small penalty. It's not back in the grid. It's two, three seconds, you know. It's not going to stop you trying to pass. It's going to stop you doing the reckless ones that are going to put someone else off the track. You know, that, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's how I see it. Yeah. And um, you you always should have that in your mind if you're going to overtake. I would hope that given the degree of uh, furore in the sort of world of fandom, and within the paddock itself, in terms of some of the decisions that are being made, or the lack of understanding as to why the decisions have been made. Yeah, that last bit. It would be brilliant if, you know, the stewards were kind of open up to somebody like yourself. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be a tech talk, but um, but something of that sort. To try and sort of explain how it was that they concluded that Taka didn't get a penalty for that first turn incident in Barcelona, because... Clearly they saw something or they thought they had justifiable objective grounds for why it wasn't a penalty. Okay, I did find out about that. How I read it was, uh, how I understand it, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not wrong on this, is Tucker got an amazing start. Yes, made yeah. up most of his ground on the start. And not surprising because the Honda's been the best off the line since pre-season testing. I spotted it and went, wow, that thing has really improved off the start. Mm-hmm. And um, Honda will probably hate me for this, but... What I see, what I see if there's any engineering gurus out there, is when they drop the clutch, it just puts so much torque through the whole thing. It's like it goes bang. And it feels like I'm talking gearbox breaking torque that it hits like a sledgehammer. The bike jumps and then does its normal start. 
and that somehow must be cruel on everything, but it gets some sort of jump those first couple of meters, you know, yeah. and um, then carries on with the normal, where, where the others more carry on with the normal start from the beginning. So if there's any really clever engineers out there, uh, <laughs> they can figure that one out. But that's what it looks like to me. I saw that in preseason testing when they were doing a multiple starts, you know. Yeah. So Tucker got this amazing start, made up all the ground, then braked. Um, what the stewards saw was a normal place to break. Got probably got on the draft as well, which mm. we've been talking about, makes yeah. it worse. Lost the front, then he didn't break too late. I understand all that, and I think they're right. But my argument is every rider on the grid has to manage that every race, and they are. Yeah. So does Tucker. If you get a really good start, you better go, whoa, like always, whoa, I better break a little bit early here because I'm going faster than everyone, or you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I don't think it's a good enough excuse. And sorry, Freddie, I, because I really like Freddie. I told you, he's a gent, cares about everyone. He's only doing the right thing. I've seen things on social media about people saying, oh, can he get bribed? Is that <laughs> he's the last guy. Yeah. <laughs> interested in that at all he wants to be fair and to be honest he probably cares too much he'll be too upset that we're all saying this but that's how i see it i would have thrown the book at tucker anyway if watching everything that's happening you know sorry tucker no no i think it's justified i mean you've got to say it as you see it haven't you i mean again it won't be the same crash we mustn't keep going on about this but i think it was carlos tata in the moto three race at the saxon room kind of had a, a similar incident where he got a great start went barreling oh, into yes. the first turn and just took loads of people out and it kind of yeah. it seems like the same crash but he gets a penalty for that one and somebody else doesn't so again well, I have been critical of the stewards because I mean just about everybody has been but I think it's the communication as much as yeah. the decisions I um haven't analysed that one but it's because I think it all was pretty obvious to all of us <laughs> well, but yeah. I think the reason would have been the same. Freddie would have done the same thing. Looked at the helicopter shot going, oh, wow, look how ladies break. He's blown it. That's why the accident happened. Where that wasn't obvious with Tucker. He looks like he bragged where everyone else did. But what I'm saying, my argument is, is that's part of it. If you get a good start, you've got to manage it as well. I think all riders feel like that, you know, because it's a scary time, you know, we need people to take everything into account and manage it. Otherwise, you you're going to get hurt or ruin someone's season. So yeah. that's how I feel. But basically, to answer your question, the, the Carlos Tatai one would have given pretty a reason, meaning he braked later than the others. That's why it happened, where he couldn't see that Tucker did anything wrong with the Barcelona one. And that's a fair enough argument, but yeah. you know mine. I think that's what I said when I first raised the question. I think it's the nuance of the difference of, between one incident to another. So I, yeah. like I say, I think it's more a question of how they communicate their decisions rather than what the actual decisions themselves are. I don't know this for sure, but please ask, you'd know Fran Wild, you know? Oh, Fran, yeah. She's lovely. I, I adore Fran. She's so cool, workmate, and very clever. I'm so glad she's involved, I want to say. But she might be the lady to ask hmm. what, um, it's definitely not my job, and I don't really want it, unless they tell me to do it, is communicating what the race direction people are doing and why. But right. Fran is the closest to that. And I think she's start, at least starting to do this. So okay. keep an eye on that. Follow her on Twitter or, you know. Get her on the show. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Perfect. Clever lady. We've talked a lot about MotoGP. So that's been absolutely brilliant. If okay with you, I'd just like to have a little bit of a chat about your riding career. Because, I mean, stellar career, Simon, it has to be said. And I'm of a vintage. I hit 50 a couple of weeks ago. So I was very <laughs> so much. you got to see it. Yeah. I very much was there. Was there. I've just shown you my Crayfar replica lid <laughs> that I still cherish. <laughs> awesome. well, I, can't, I can't wear it anymore because it's done a few too many miles now. But um, 
1994 through to 1997, you were in the World Superbike Championship, first yes. off with Honda, and then I would argue, and certainly in terms of when I really started to get into World Superbike, I think most famously with the Muzzy Kawasaki squad. Yep, Muzzy the first year, and uh, so the, the years you said with Honda was 94, was my first full season World Championship. Yep. And um, I bounced around doing everything possible after British Championship 92. 93, I rode some World Endurance on a Ducati with the factory. Uh, four World Superbike rounds on a private Ducati that was owned by Raymond Roche, who's an absolute legend, by the way, 90, 1990 World Superbike Champion. And he, luckily for me, saw something in me and kind of put an extra kit bike in the truck with Foggy and Philippa and let me ride it with one of their mechanics, you know, which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. So I did four World Superbike rounds. Uh, I think best was six, Estoril. Then I did four, I think it was, 500 Grand Prix uh, on a Harris Yamaha. Uh, Peter Graves was the team owner. Oh, then I finished the season. I got a, a 250 Lucky Strike job to finish the season, you know. Mm-hmm. All I was trying to do that year is ride for nothing just to get into World Championship, you know, yeah. and um, bounce around whatever whatever anyone would let me ride I did in World Championship. And that led to a good ride the next year, and that was World Superbikes with Rumi Honda, which was my dream come true first full world championship and we got fifth in the world superbike championship and that was with a privately built you know a known private team first mm-hmm. private bike in the championship yeah i did it again the following year and it was a bit of a mess the following year but luckily for me Doug poland didn't turn up from america and um oscar rumi and castro honda did a deal where i could ride their beautiful bike in uh, rumi colors so i got yeah two years on a honda then mm-hmm. muzzy kawasaki which was another dream come true finally ride for a manufacturer you know factory team that was one year and then with anthony gobert was the other rider and then the second year kawasaki gave which I think made sense because Muzzy were a little bit isolated being American where they gave it to Harold Eckel and he's in Germany, in Europe. Yeah. And that, I understood that reason, you know. There's probably other lots of other positives and negatives. But then, so I rode for the same manufacturer, Kawasaki, but with two different teams, you know, 96, 97. No, the second year was fantastic because uh, not, not just but about the team was that Kawasaki was, was a new bike in 96. The chassis was awesome, but the engine, they hadn't had any time to develop and it was a dog. <laughs> Anthony and I crashed our brains out trying to make it successful. We both had the weight of a factory yeah. team on our shoulders and we were over trying to get it because the thing was slow. The second year, Anthony didn't get to experience this, but the, um, he did an awesome job, by the way, like of making that bike look faster than it was. <laughs> in the second year, I was still there with the Anagawa this year, 97, and they had the winter to develop the engine and it was both chassis and engine good and that was my best year in superbikes yeah i mean looking back i haven't sort of gone back and watched any of the late 90s superbike racing for a while i'm gonna do that in the off season for sure but how do you recall those sort of years? Because I mean, it was a real glory period for the World Superbike Championship itself, wasn't it? And there was yeah, so was, many was. riders, so many bikes and good bikes and fans, as well. Yeah, and fans. I mean, and I'd... the amount of people trying to qualify. And we had yeah. the we had all the um, the local riders, you know, the wildcards that were damn fast on their own tracks. It was yeah. super exciting. Then the crowds got behind them. It was amazing. Like you know, you go to America and the American when you go to Japan and they'd get first and second. I remember I'd be yeah. first first European guy. Well, non Japanese guy standing on the podium in third which i was rather proud of you know (laughs) and and then you know you go to england and uh you know uk and and local boys that do awesome it was it was perfect i wish the uh rigs made that possible still well funny enough i was chatting to greg haynes from eurosport yeah top man yeah greg and i very excited
excited because World Superbike is rocking up to Donny Park and we have got three that I know of wildcards from the British Superbike Championship. Fantastic. Which is great because, I mean, we haven't seen that to any particular degree for a long, long time. And as you say, we were talking about recalling the sort of the, the days where you go to Suga and suddenly these unknown Japanese, well, unknown to us, Japanese riders would rock yeah. up and just disappear at the front. I mean, it that was, was the crazy. event I was uh, talking about. Yanagawa and Haga, and we didn't know who Haga was really then. Yeah. Um, just ran away battling at the front and left third to the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> it was impressive. You mentioned Anthony Gobert a minute ago. I mean, a good or a bad guy to have on the other side of the garage because... I mean, you hear such differing stories about people's experiences of interacting with him or working with him. Was he as much of a lost talent as people sort of claim? Um, yeah, I I would say yes, because I remember saying at the time that he's the most talent that I've ever seen, you know. He's equal to the most talent I've ever seen on a motorbike. And the problem was it was all good. And then when it wasn't all good, it was bloody terrible. He's so disruptive. Mm. From I'm talking as a teammate's point of view, yeah. you know. He was so disruptive in the team, like um, no respect for other staff or me or his own mechanics. And when he went that way, it was you just oh there's no other way I can think to put it as really disruptive in the team you know mm. but when he was good he was really he was great you know like a good giggle and when he was riding good he was amazing like yeah. I don't think anyone on the same bike would beat him. I remember thinking, I don't care if you put Mick on that, he wouldn't go as fast as Anthony on that bike, you know? Yeah. And uh, Mick was the man to beat in the world then. That, that's how good he was, you know? I genuinely believe that. So, yeah, real shame. I think it comes down to, like all sports, It's uh, I always say this because I'm so sure it's true, is a sports person is a mix of natural ability and work ethic on the other yeah. side. And it's finding the right balance of that and everybody's varies if you look at each rider some of them work harder and less talented some of them work crazy hard you, or, you know what i'm saying there's yeah, a different yeah. balance yeah. And the, I mean, Mick was an amazing balance of not quite as talented as, as the freaks, you know, where I'd say the proper aliens, but he was the hardest worker I ever saw. Mm. So with the balance was awesome, you know, the two of the two. And the thing missing with Anthony is, was the work ethic, you know. So, um, and he can't get there. I realized part of the way through the season, I don't have to be worried about him. He'll never put a whole season together. Right. So, um, yeah. And that's looking at it as a competitor and as a teammate, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose if you, kind of imagine the modern world that we live in now I mean you also have to have this acceptability in terms of your persona and how you interact with the monster that is the media nowadays I suppose because Mick Doohan himself in his heyday he was famously truculent I think when it came to interaction with the media <laughs> wouldn't I let's yeah. put it sort of somewhat politely <laughs> yeah yeah he was he came across very grumpy a lot of the time yeah and I don't yeah. I'm a friend of Mick but it's the truth and yeah, I yeah. think he'll know that as well yeah I mean Foggy can look at himself how he was now and laugh as well you know or cringe um <laughs> but the other thing is Fabio that's another reason you can give Fabio a big pat on the back you see how he's still only 23 but from 21 to 23 how he sorted his head out you know his how he approaches stuff how he manages difficult situations and bounces back and this is what I mean about the work ethics side is managing all that and uh, Fabio's done an amazing job in the last year yeah months actually anecdotally we heard from somewhere because we were chatting about it on the show again a week or two ago that Fabio had been working with a kind of a sports psychologist kind of person just to try and help 
sort of training yeah, that last couple of years yeah. famously kind of heart on the sleeve kind of persona of his and uh, he does seem a lot calmer I mean okay he's got a world championship under his belt and one thing and another but you still see the um, normal young guy you know full of testosterone and, and aggression and out there riding and things aren't going right Neil waves his arms around and I'm sure he's swearing flat out in French <laughs> under a in his helmet, but as soon as he's let that steam off, you'll snap straight back into, let's sort this out. What's the best way to handle it? Not follow that path like he did, you know, like yeah. some guy and get angry with everybody or he'll figure out the best way forward. And yeah, hats off to him. A little water test that I always have is, would you want to go out and have a beer with that person? And I imagine he's probably a pretty good laugh to go <laughs> yeah. out and have a few drinks with. Um, one yeah. of my favourite off-track moments of this season, sorry, we're straight back onto MotoGP again, but was when the, the fan was in the stands in Indonesia, dancing in the wet weather pause and Fabio was in the pit box and they just happened to show this guy sort of dancing in the stands and Fabio was just lapping it up, loving it, laughing out loud and it must have made the fans day because of course it was being beamed around the circuit on the big screens but Fabio was laughing his head off in the pit so I thought that was a great moment. All of us that have to work with Fabio in the paddock also like how he is off camera you know yeah. he's, he's a nice fella so. Yeah and no, I'm sure. Um, just coming to 1998 then you did what most superbike riders to that point hadn't done and made a very successful switch across to 500 GP. Now I'm assuming that we might be sort of talking about the pinnacle of your career. Yeah yeah 97 on the superbike 98 on the 500 yeah, was the with best. The um, Yamaha on the YZR 500 yep. so, and very famously you won Donington I think was that in 97? No, 98, 98. 98, okay. And that was the last win in the Premier Class with Dunlop, if I'm not yes, completely yep. uh, wrong. So, I I mean, my best ones were Assen the weekend before, got my first podium, and I tried my very best to finish that race. No, I didn't go fighting in the last three when the boys put the hammer down, because I thought, like we all think, is that I thought if I don't get this podium, I look behind and I think it was Barris was well back. Mm-hmm. Barris or Crivier, I can't remember. He was well back and I thought, I've got podium in the bag if I fight and go down everybody's going to call me i can't say the word on here but you know that everyone's going to think that like ah you know he was never going to get the podium look Mm. and you are aware of that going for your first podium so i got that one in the bag i'd literally let mick and max fight the last couple of laps and i just went i'm going to get this one then the next weekend i just went let i've got that in the bag proved them wrong the doubters let's go for it and i spent the whole weekend like that it was at a track that i knew from um british championship and that and um yeah i managed to win donnington and then uh Phillip Island, which was my favourite race later yeah. that season, second to last race, I think it was, go from seven on the first lap, seventh at halfway, and finish second to Mick, passing my heroes. That's why it's my best memory, <laughs> passing guys. I, I remember battling with uh, Norikape and John Kosinski, who was back on the Pons Honda, was it? Yes. Um, yeah. Crivier, passing Crivier. He was the last guy I passed, I remember. Guys like that, yeah, it was Barros Crivier with the last two I had to come by. And then pull away from them and bridge the gap halfway to Mick, who's run away. Yeah, I was like in front of mum and dad and my granddad and uncle and sister and you know because it was at Phillip Island they made yeah, the trip yeah. that's my best memory so Wow. I mean, can you articulate what is it like? I mean, going back to the Donington race that year, what is it like to stand on the top step of a podium having won, okay, GP500 as it was known in those days? I mean, what did that feel like? What are your recollections of that day? Is it clear in your mind or has it gone into a bit of a blur? No, no, I remember it. The thing is, I think most writers all, uh, I mean, I read Rainey's book and his was probably the extreme that way. I remember thinking when I read it, it was a long time ago now, but most writers, I think, will agree in that. It's, I mean, it's absolutely fantastic 
But the sad thing is you move straight away to the next goal, you know. Mm. It's very short-lived. You, you're only, I mean, to me, it, I was on, no kidding, a helicopter about two hours after the race going to Heathrow with all the HRC guys, Don Kaczynski, Barros, Crivier, I think it was, anyway, to, no, Okada, I knew I'd get it, yep. to Heathrow quickly to get a plane to Japan to go to the eight hour, which was straight mm. after, you know. Bloody. And so you have to just straight away go next goal, like eight hour, your partner, because races, as soon as you plant the seed of, it's why I don't do any fun races, because as soon as you go, yeah, I'll do that fun race, races all have the same, <laughs> how can I win it, you know? Yeah. And so as much as great as that was, you're straight away thinking about how can I win the eight hour, you know, because you're on the plane to the eight hour two hours later. But yeah, it was a dream come true. I wish I got some more. <laughs> but uh, the other bit I remember really clearly, <laughs> I think listeners all will uh, relate to is we don't do it for the money you know because you can't you can't put your body and everything and effort on for money you, you can't you got to do it because you love it you know it's the most yeah. important thing in your life but you know when I had finished all the press stuff and then went to my motorhome was having a shower my wife came running and going what because I was like screaming in the shower because I just realized I'd won this massive bonus <laughs> oh, <right. Okay>. yeah. <laughs> and so and she started laughing and yeah so I remember that really clearly <laughs> yeah Fair enough. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's also the, you, the respect you get from who you're writing for. All of that is all cool as well. You know, you're doing your job, basically. You don't feel like someone's nipping on your heels because when you're one of those 20 something guys, there's always someone nipping on your heels wanting your job. You know, you have to do the job. And that's what makes it less and less fun, you know, because yeah. it's no longer the loving riding motorbikes. It's like you're paid well to do the job. You have to do the job. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, you are in a astonishingly small club of people that can claim to have won a premier class motorcycle grand prix so that's yeah, yeah awesome awesome I, I should throw in that i feel very uh but the only thing i feel a bit bitter about i wouldn't say very but bitter about when i think about it is not winning a superbike race because that's even smaller club winning both yeah. and i know i should have there was some that i ran away and then the front tire delaminated or engine pipe broke well i remember when i was hunting someone down at hockenheim and all thing you know have to stop or Kaczynski got me on two corners to go from the chicken flag yeah. after leading the whole way yeah. I'm like so I'm a little bit pissed about that but <laughs> if I had to have the choice I've got the one that I would rather you know so I'm gonna have to go and dust off my <clears throat> 1996 World Superbike video with uh, Julian Ryder and Toby Moody commentating <laughs> that, was, uh, that thing's uh, had a bit of action over the years just finally on the racing career and you caught me off guard slightly because I hadn't must admit I hadn't realized that you had run in the British Championship prior to going into World Superbikes so what class was that in then Simon was that in like a 250cc um, or something like that no no I rode for Castro Honda Neil Tuxworth one of three oh. times I ended up riding for Neil I've got to give him and Harvey Belcher and I've got to give a shout out too I loved working with those guys they were always super good to me they did what they said they would do which is not always the case with teams you know yeah. and um, don't always leave the same good memories because and hey, I mean Neil's as tight as they come you know he's an accountant <laughs> but I genuinely love him he, he really helped me and um, so that was a really good memory that was 92 when I first rode for them and um, it was, I think called the British MCN Championship yeah I rode an RC30 kind yeah. of the last year of an RC30 I got to throw in that and this is not bagging 
uh, British Championship, because I know how good British Championship is. It's um, something I'm most proud of because I think it's, um, I wish that I could share this with young people. Uh, I think it's important too. And that I got to the end, I'd never been paid well to ride a motorbike. I'd never been paid before I went to British Championship. I got paid something in 92, but it wasn't anything exciting. I never even negotiated. I went, yeah, that's great, but I would like to do three World Superbike races, not one, just at Mm -hmm. Donington. Can you do that? You know what I'm saying? Because I wanted to ride World Championship. And so I rode that one year, got to the end of the year, and Neil Tuxworth, who I told you, I I love him, he and Bob McMillan sat me down. I remember having pints with Joey Dunlop. We were both at this end of the year function. um, They used to be in Chiswick, is that right? I haven't got a very good memory. I haven't spent much time in London, but I think they used to be in Chiswick yeah. anyway at Honda UK Bob McMillan and uh, it was the end of the year Honda UK function and I remember Joey and I not feeling super comfy in like formal wear you know we were <laughs> having pints in the corner talking about tracks and bikes and lovely guy by the way I feel fortunate to have done that and I uh, got to sit down with Bob McMillan Neil Tuxworth and they put a deal in front of me that said three times the money and there's still the company car and no kidding I said no I'm not going to do it I'm sorry I'm uh, I'm going to ride world championship and they said have you got a deal have you to ride world championship and I went no and they were like uh, well this is a pretty good deal so and I went I know I know <laughs> But uh, I didn't plan to tell you this, but but I said to convince them, I said, look, I know me, I'm bored. And if I'm bored, I'll drink and chase girls, you know, and uh, I got to focus on what I want to do. And so they went, fair enough. But I didn't have a job until I, uh, a phone went. I mean, can you imagine going through April, March, April and the phone, I'd have nothing. And I'm in New Zealand going, yeah. uh, what have I done? <laughs> yeah, well, I was stressed. And then the phone rings and that was the first one of those, all those bikes I rode in 93, just for nothing, just to get a ride in World Championship. And that was the Harris Yamaha for Peter Graves. I did four rides, you know, the four on the, on the Ducati World Superbikes, yeah. one on a Ducati and the Endurance World Championship, uh, Baldor, and seven rides I think I had on a 250 Lucky Strike for Tech 3. And my dream had come true because I'd said no to what wasn't the most important thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm really proud that I did that at that age, you know, had yeah. the balls to say no to a good deal because it wasn't exactly what I wanted. And I think that's why I wanted to share that with young people. Who, If you've got a goal, it's too easy to get distracted by yeah. deals that pull you away from the goal. And yeah, McDoan saying, don't focus on the money, focus on the results and the money will come. Yeah. And um that was one that I got told later by Mick Doohan. And how true is that? It fits exactly was the same mentality. So Absolutely. I didn't bore you with that one. No, no, no. I was fascinated. And as you say, a salient lesson in there for young riders coming up through the ranks. You've got a, a dream and a goal in mind and making sure they try and stay on as a straight a line as possible towards you know well, achieving that aim. It's too easy to get pulled off the right path, you know, by other yeah. things. So The reason I got caught off guard slightly because, you know, I was obviously delighted in 2002 when you rocked up in the British Superbike Championship riding on the Virgin Mobile Yamaha. I was just kind of curious how that deal came about because um, not many people were doing that at that particular time. Um, I try my best to forget that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what? how it came around was um, I'd stopped riding, worked as an Olin's technician for in Grand Prix and for Norikabe. So I had two riders in 500s, two riders in 250s, and uh, Locatelli, Battini in 250s, and Factory Aprilias, and really enjoyed that job. Uh, it was my goal to do that job, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I'd 
kind of teed it up for a while because I was a bike mechanic for us well, while I was starting to race, did my apprenticeship as a motorcycle mechanic. Yeah. I understand the technical side, you know, always I built all my first race bikes, always worked on my own bikes. So I thought it would be an easy transition. And it was because you go from the huddle of, um, you know, the crew chief, uh, data guy, um, it's changed a little bit now, but crew chief, mm-hmm. data guy, tire technician, you know, rider, suspension technician, these guys in a huddle, I was just moving sideways. So I felt totally at home uh, in that world, you know, yeah. uh, but working as a technician. And the problem was, well, not problem, but it was, the thing was, um, we'd had our first child that year and we're in Andorra with no support for Kirst and them and then I got to the end of the season the same thing happened got the deal in front of me to work for Olin's the next year the deal was what I asked for better because I was no longer a rookie you know and, mm-hmm. and I thought honestly when I got that pen out I went if I sign that it's a really good chance to put it bluntly that I'll get divorced you know mm. I'm not home my wife is struggling at home with her first baby with no support and I kind of went Ah, I can't spend the whole year on the road, you know? So I didn't do it. And uh, then I thought, what can I do? And right at that, on that day, probably caught, caught me at a soft moment. At that, that, that day, <laughs> was in Malaysia at a race there. Must have been towards the end of the season then. Neil McKenzie walked in and said, sorry, I can't tell you, Rob Mack's looking for someone to ride a, the Virgin Yamaha, you know? And I kind of went, well, I still got my motor home. I could take my whole family and just, we could all be together, which is the wrong reason to go racing. And yeah the results kind of showed it and um yeah there's lots of other news in there but i do my best to forget it the things i don't forget is the life friends and we made that season you know one of my teammates paul jones was the young boy coming through he's like uncle to my kids there's you know friends that became like grandparents to my kids so lots of good stuff came out of it but nothing to do with racing yeah and probably a a few sketchy kind of thoughts on some of the british tracks that you went to that year as well maybe yeah sure to go from world championship tracks to british is not easy for your head you know especially at that period you know you don't even Mm. notice when you're a young fella because you don't see that stuff when you're early 20s but you do when you're i don't know what was it early 30s yeah you do yeah so yeah that's it that's the truth about that i was gonna ask a question but i possibly will save it perhaps hopefully for another time but just talking about how you sort of transitioned into commentary work unless you've got a couple of minutes you can just tell us how that came about because i mean it i would probably suggest to you is one of the biggest career shifts and challenges that you've ever faced yes uh, it is that is, you're right. Oh, what happened? I've been doing the Moto Voodoo stuff for quite a while, videos and things, and someone touched base with me. Just trying to remember his name. Got an email and saying, Simon, when you come to the next MotoGP, it was someone from Dorna. Mm-hmm. We'd like to get an interview with you about, we're making a history, you know, a series of history videos, and we want to get an interview with you. And I was like, yeah, sure. So the next interview, sorry, the next race I went to, I went and did this interview, and it was about McDermott and I qualifying you know that crazy qualifying in Assen where he did the one lap and managed to pit pole off me and Mick did the interview as well and they spliced it together you know back and forwards and made, made this yeah. cool old vid and then did another one about the, the win yeah the Donington so I did this and unbeknown to me my boss now was watching that and his uh, the, the woman who took the interview he was just watching everything that was going on and he said at the end of it because I asked how did I you know how did you think of me he says well we did all these videos 
because we were looking for ultimately a rider who had won a world championship level to come in and work and replace a journalist because we had three journalists you know mm. commentary one journalist in pit lane two in the box we'd like to mix it up and have one as an ex-rider you know one of those so i was already on the up the lookout for a uh, ex-rider who had won because that gives it credentials uh, that so he said and then when you did that interview you did it first take and we went oh that was really easy and then you were polite and left and we went so i put your name on the list mm. <laughs> so i don't know where it was on the list i don't know how many said no before me but he got to me and uh, i checked with the family again of course so what happened is i went to another race they emailed and said please can you come and see us and i thought it was another video i didn't even go didn't even go see them i'd forgot literally <laughs> forgot Brilliant. and then the next race i did go when i saw them and they hit me with this do you want to do uh, the commentary gig and uh, I ran it by my family and uh, the kids all on the phone, you know, I'd check with them and they went, yeah, you can't, you got to do it. So you're right. It was a baptism of fire. I thought, because I knew motorbikes and knew the paddock and knew the garage, knew the technical side that, how hard can it be? But it was very hard because I knew nothing about being a journalist, which yeah. is a whole different career. And you really need all that knowledge. And I had none of it. And man, it was hard. Yeah. And then the more, I mean, like any trade, you jump in the deep end like that you make mistakes you got to got to make the mistakes to learn how not to you know to learn what to avoid and like, it was the same as being a bike mechanic when i started out exactly the same yeah. but the problem with this one you're doing it in front of everybody and then you get crucified on social media for those mistakes get more nervous make more of them and it was like proper horrible to be honest i think it's a bit cruel throwing someone i wouldn't like someone if i ever stopped the next person needs some training you know because it was yeah. genuinely horrible so i um i survived you know, I'm a stubborn, I won't say the word. I just disconnected from the social media stuff, got my head down, got some training, paid for it myself, went to London and got a guy that, you know, does that sort of training to give me tips on some things and right down to how to hold the mic, you know, yeah. when you're interviewing someone. I can very well remember when you first came into the paddock. And I mean, it, it was, to be fair, I mean, it was obvious that it was a new venture for you. And, you know, but I think, you know, 99.999 recurring percent of people that criticise people that are on live TV that don't have the first clue about what's involved and how difficult it must be. I mean, I literally shit myself when I'm preparing to do these things and then do these sort of motopod interviews. And I get to, this isn't live, and I get to edit out all the mistakes at the end before we put it out. So I can only imagine what it must have been like for you to sort of rabbit in the headlights to go into that environment. Oh, and, horrendous. And, horrendous. Yeah. Hey, so... And I thought you did a really good job, Simon, by the way. And I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. And you've grown into the role. In the first year, I didn't. The second year, I started to figure it out. And the third year, it started to come good and I got told by one of the big bosses that's how it works because he did it his whole career and now he's one of the big bosses he said this is how I didn't believe him I thought I can figure it out you know and surely in the first year but when looking back he was dead right it mm. works like that first but that's how it was for a mechanic as well when i was a mechanic first yeah. year made all mistakes second year started figuring out third year i was good you know and um then you know you get better from there and sorry what one thing on the positive side the buzz you get from the live stuff is i didn't expect that i didn't think that it, there would be a buzz in like talking about motorbikes yeah. but there is part of your job is not only to get everything crossed is pretend there's no problems when there's lots you know yeah like there's something out of time on the headphones don't work or that somebody's talking in your ear because you forgot to turn something off there's always problems with live stuff you know especially yeah. when you're moving sites you know what i mean like you're mm. flying to another track and and part of your job i believe 
is trying to cover up the mistakes. Don't complain about them. Make the job look like there was none, you know? And when you pull that off, it's a buzz, you know? It's like, yeah, yeah I didn't expect it, but it is. And so you get it enjoyable. I'm very pleased, I must say, to see that you're spending a lot more time in the commentary booth during races now. I mean, I guess there's been a bit of a shake-up since Steve Day left at the end of last year. Yeah. I, was, I had the great pleasure to chat to Steve earlier in the season, just before he got going with his BSP activities, and I've met him a couple of times at the track since and stuff, and we'll be talking to Steve again soon. But it, it clearly prompted a bit of a shake-up, which is, you know, that's always a good thing in certain respects. And it's great that you're spending more time, you know, during the actual sessions themselves in the commentary booth, but that's presumably a little bit of a new thing again. Yeah, I was scared when Steve told us that he's leaving. I, I was like, oh no, because Steve... He's top draw. From the second year that Steve was there, the first year was my first year. So Steve had to deal with me, not, you know, and I had to deal with Steve figuring out how to manage us being the lead. And I don't think either of us did the job. I, mine sure wasn't great. And I think Steve didn't do it as well as that first year. I'm just being straight up. He nailed it from second year on managing us. He figured out that, you know, being lead commentators about, oh, this is what I believe, bringing out the best in everybody else as well, yeah. not just going for it yourself, you know. And Steve did that pretty awesome. And he managed us in a, and right down to managing the personalities. And I was worried about losing Steve by the end of the fourth year because he did all of that so well. <laughs> and um, I was scared, to be honest. And then I was scared that we'd lose maybe Matt because things were going terrible. And uh. anyway, it's been an awesome opportunity, like they always say. Uh, some disaster always you know yep. comes opportunities and uh, Donna uh, messaged me and said right for next year do you want some time in the box and I said yeah but because I'd like to learn that but not the race because I don't want to go from pit lane no experience straight into a race I'm not confident to do that I need learning you know like I was saying you know made learn from the mistakes in uh, in the normal sessions and then go from there so I pointed out that the optimum is to have the mornings in the pit lane so I can see what the changes are to the bikes and bring that information because it's always the overnights that change the chassis and the bikes change drastically you know yeah so if i get the mornings and then the afternoons in the box commentating on what i've seen as well you know and then i don't miss anything they agreed to that so it gave me everything else so i get fp1 so the first in the pit lane see what's happening what's new uh, fp2 in the afternoon talking about it in the box then yeah. saturday fp3 the morning session in the pit lane see what's changed and the whole afternoon which i didn't expect so fp4 and qualifying in there so yeah i was very nervous at the beginning of the first race i didn't sleep the night before in the first race no kidding the first day that i was going to spend in the box but i've got to really like it because i think i was so scared because how do you replace steve you know yeah but then i figured out i can't so i've just got to be me you know and bring what i can which is the technical side you know the sort of the pit lane observations then sort of discussing those once you're in the commentary booth in the afternoon that is a kind of a different thing which i've not heard anybody do before and i, I think that brings a really brilliant perspective and, and a new kind of angle to the commentary some really interesting infilling work in terms of you know just talking through the technical stuff on the bike because it's so fascinating how these bikes that never stay the same and but i don't know that a lot of people really quite appreciate the relentless amount of development and change that goes on yeah and i'm glad you think so i tried to bring what i would want to hear you know yeah, and that yeah. is the stuff that's happening in the pit lane you know and some of it's not just technical it's about the teams about what's going on so i try to bring that to those uh those sessions yeah right i'm very conscious of time so a couple of quick fire things as we start to wrap this up then so this is a bit of a sort of a cliche question but was there a rider in particular that you idolized
guys before you kind of really got your own career going? I mean, did you have somebody's poster up on the wall when you were growing up? Who was the who was the guy? Oh, you... A lot. I mean, I grew up with motocross. Did motocross till I was fifteen. Yeah. Um. Well, almost sixteen. And yeah, no, more or less sixteen. And so all the American motocrossers, because we got the motocross action for America, uh, like Brad Lackey and um, but a heap all that era, eighties era, and then mm-hmm. Harkin Calquist and George's Joe Bay and all the European uh, races. You know, um, I've even got to meet some of them, which is um, very cool. Some some of the Brits as well, met, you know, amazing. So um, like Dave Thorpe, for example. Yeah, Dave is the name I remember. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had all those guys' posters on my wall. Then I went road racing at um, late 15, started um, riding on the track. And then it was whoever was in the mags then. And I had, I, I couldn't list them all. I mean, I got to meet again, a lot of them, Franco and Chini, you know, because he, mm. he was in the magazines at the time, winning a, obviously Freddie Spencer. And, and then, you know, the big one that was it kind of what, what's the word um inspired me that's the word because what he did was exactly what i wanted to do i was like wow he's shown it's possible was mcdoon you know mm. go from the local aussie championship to bang world superbikes quickly and not you know, <laughs> yeah. destroyed everyone at a race meeting and then got offered a 500 and then started figuring it out I, I was like wow that is showing that it can be done and yeah. you know from down under to top of the world so uh, he was yeah then I got to be his training partner and race him and he was standing on the podium with him a few times so there yeah awesome there's a fantastic section in I think it's Matt Oxley's book The Fast Stuff early on in the book where he's describing he's out on a lap at the Suzuki Rate Hour and then McDoon goes by you know and getting to watch that is like bloody hell <laughs> because they've got off uh, I've, I did that got off a 500 and go to the 8 hour and everything happens faster on the 500 so you get onto the heavier bike uh, the four stroke and you are ahead of the bike. Those guys just get on and play with it, you know, and, yeah. it, and it's um, fantastic to see. Wayne Gardner did the same to me, came around the outside of me, a spoon curve onto the back straight, and then lifted up to a big slide onto the back straight and turned that slide, finished it with a wheelie as it got grip. And I was like, oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> How do I do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was my first visit to the ADR in 89. Now, because I'm a, still a relative newbie on Motopod, and certainly I've never done podcasts or anything like this before, everybody I've interviewed so far has been a commentator which you are but you're also a rider so this question is tailor-made for you so uh, any bike any track what would you choose anything from history any bike any track is there, is there a bike and track combination that if you could go out and do a track day, you'd say, right, I'm going to ride that and this is where I'm going to ride it? Oh, it's a hard one because I want to ride them all. <laughs> um, I mean, I suppose the one that has, had been in the forefront of my mind uh, when I came to MotoGP that I hope I get to ride was uh, the Ducati MotoGP bike at Mugello mm-hmm. because... Wow, the Magello, you know, or yeah, the other one that went through my mind was the Yamaha at Phillip Island because, yeah. again, one of my favorites. And um, the Yamaha is more famous for going around corners, you know, and Phillip Island's all about the corners. So that'd be it. I think that that's genuinely just off the top of my head without thinking too much about it. Um, but I feel super lucky to ride the KTM in Austria, yeah. uh, the Aprilia at Magello, which is pretty damn close to the dream come true. Yeah. And then uh, watch the space in the next few weeks. I think we've got another one for you. 
Oh, brilliant. Right, I think it's time to wrap this up because you've already given me a huge amount of your time. Just tell us a little bit about Moto Voodoo because uh, that, that's still fairly active, I'm sure, is it, in terms of what you're doing there? It has been. It's. I mean, I've been doing it for 15 years and I get less and, like I was saying, about time away. from the. I get less and less time. Maybe it's energy as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the, there's more and more responsibility slowly in the MotoGP thing. The, the GP thing, like they're aiming at more, you know, and I've had less time for the, the track day scene. I still really enjoy it, but I don't know how long I'm going to keep going for, uh, you know. I don't know. Maybe it's, I'm thinking literally about this as I speak. So wow. I'm not prepared at all. Exclusive, but, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I I know me and I, it feels like I'm ready for something new, you know, something else, some, mm. whether it's going to progress into something else or, you know, morph into something or, but I need something new. That's, yeah. but I don't know what it is. And I, but that's it's how I feel. 15 years is quite a long time to be doing anything, isn't it? Yeah. I still really enjoy it and I've got some guys that I love doing events with because it's not just about riding on track it's about the meals in the evening and the giggles yeah, yeah. and the, the whole camaraderie and I love riding with my boy when I get to take him so yeah watch the space let's see what happens from here well whilst people still have the chance what's the website address I'm presuming it's motovudi.com is it it is yes yeah, yeah com. and we've obviously got all the YouTube vids yeah and social media are you sort of a Twitterer particularly well you are a Twitterer because I was reading some the other day but um, what's your what's your handle on Twitter just so people can go and uh, connect with you just me my name Simon Crafer that's Simon Crafer yep Twitter and uh, Instagram and we've got Motor Voodoo on those as well yep brilliant yeah so uh, I'm again a little bit excited just to finish off on that a little mm-hmm. bit excited about what's going to happen from here because I don't know but I know I've got the energy to do something at least another one whatever you know something else you know look forward to seeing what that is Simon Crafer it remains for me to say thank you very much it's been a great personal pleasure from my point of view because as I say I've followed your career so closely through the period that we've been talking about and certainly on behalf of all the Motopod listeners thank you very much and we will hope to have you again sometime in the future uh, my pleasure um, you're a gent obviously we've never got to sat down before but yep. you're a gent I'm sure the listeners know that and yeah I hope they enjoyed I didn't bore them to sleep if, if sure I not. have time to wake up <laughs> <laughs> thanks Simon okay. see you again bye for now see you James Tozen, sorry to interrupt you, but we've just had the news that Motopod have hit their 700th episode. Here we are, wasting time talking about Razgatioglu, Ray and Bautista, when Motopod has hit their 700. Psst.